Welcome to Savvy Sab's podcast on call-in. This is episode 143. Nikki Haley's comment, Wall Street homes, Chelsea Handler, and more, and whatever else you want to discuss. Interesting night. I see we already have people lined up in the chat. So let's go ahead and bring in Brady. You are on the mic. Just have to mute. There you go. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, wanted to mention, I know you were looking for a contact for Whitney Webb. She's kind of hard to get a hold of. And so I was going to recommend, uh, I sent you a, a Facebook message today with Derek Brose's email. And he's worked with Whitney Webb a lot in the past, so he's really knowledgeable when it comes to those kind of networks and things. And he, like I said, he's also really knowledgeable when it comes to mutual aid networks through the Freedom Cell Network that he's kind of part of. Pardon me while I get my car ready here. But um, yeah, he's a he would be a good proxy interview in place of Whitney Webb. And I just want to say that I've been pulling so many conservatives uh, from the right to the left, like in TikTok chats. And I just want to mention that uh, I think conservatives and Donald worshipers right now are primed for kind of like another Bernie Sanders moment where like they want to go left. They just need us to produce a good representative that they can kind of get behind, you know? And um, so if we just had some better leadership options from the left, we could really pull at least half of the Donald worshiping crowd easily. If we could just get some more, I think accountability in our leadership. And that's the big thing for me recently is like, I think more than democracy, what I want is accountability, you know, um, and people, leadership to be accountable for their actions. I want leadership that I can trust. Or I don't have to worry about, you know, um, having someone represent me. But as it is right now, um, what I want is direct and transparent democracy because I don't trust my representatives. And so, um, yeah, just if, if we could get some good representatives from the left to kind of extend a welcoming hand to the right, believe it or not, they're really easy to win over. So I just want to kind of float that idea out there. And uh, yeah, Derek Rose would be a good proxy for Whitney. And I'll pass the joint. You guys have a good night. I got to get to work. <laughs> oh, Thank you so much, uh, Brady. I'll have to check that uh, Facebook chat. I'm not the best at checking those. Um, so I probably got a couple, a lot of them that are just whatever's, you know. Um, Roger, I will go ahead and, and go to you. Um, and then I'll bring in Ashura. If, if you're ready, Roger, let me know. If not, also let me know if you're not ready. Yeah, I am here. Excuse the wiper blades because it is raining. Yeah, I know it's raining here too. It's, it's been so raining all day. Oh, yeah, yeah, get in, get in. All right, call me back. Get in the customer. Okay. All right. So let's bring in Ashura. All right. Ashura, you are on the mic. Hey, Scotty. What's up? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, last time I was here, somebody got mad because uh, <laughs> about some kind of pronunciation about the uh, the Dubois uh, guy. I forgot his name. W. B. Dubois. Yeah, Dubois. Yeah, because I said Dubois in French. That person got mad. So uh, tonight, apparently, I gotta correct you again. But this time, 
there's another person you brought up tonight when you brought that tweet about those two two idiots or talking about Israel. Jean? You, yeah, well, it's not Jean. It's it's pronounced Jean. That's what I said. I, I heard Jean. I could have sworn I said Jean. Okay. Anyways, but you said the Dissalinas bus. You don't have to pronounce the S at the end. Okay. Okay, so just so you, just so you know, because uh, for some reason you brought up uh, like Haitian stuff. So, uh, and you brought up Roland Martin, which is something I didn't know. Roland Martin is Haitian. What? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah, you sure, yeah. sure? No, he's yeah, right. yeah, he's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, like, one period. Uh, MPA Films said that in the chat. I'm like, man, get, nigga, get the fuck out of here. Like, I think I needed uh, Uncle Ruckus to come in and do some exorcism and shit because I almost fell down my chair. And then I looked it up. I'm like, yeah, he has Haitian heritage. He his his great grandparents came in 1968. Okay, I I did not know that. So that's a new one to me. Because I was he- like, well, because I knew Roland likes to say the word gumbo a lot. I'm like, because gumbo's like a Haitian food. It's in the Caribbean. So I'm like, why is he talking about gumbo so much? And now it makes sense why he's talking about gumbo because basically he's got some Haitian heritage. Yeah, well, I people think, from Louis, people from Louisiana talk about gumbo a lot too. Yeah, but uh, if if we if we know about the slave trade, Sabrina, like most of these slaves didn't just come from Africa; they came from other places too. Like Haiti was the place where it's the last slave uh, plantation. You send them in when you can't get a slave to work properly. You send them to Haiti. Mm. Sabrina, but he's he, he's right because um, my bad. I, I thought you knew that. I should have told you before. No, I did not know that at all. I was not aware of that. Because also... Oh, let me just say this real quick. One parent is Haitian, and one and his other parent, I believe, is Freedman. Oh, okay. Yeah, because another person that's not mentioned in the Haitian, like the forefathers, because my stepdad has this uh, giant frame with all the uh, Haitian leaders, is that the guy who was killed, I sent you the picture of him, uh, it was a black and white picture. It's the it's the bookman guy. Uh, he was Jamaican, so Haitians got a mix of everybody in there. So it was a Jamaican guy that started the revolution, and we picked it up afterwards, ten years later. Interesting. Yeah, because I'm like, once I heard really Martin had Haitian heritage, I'm like, fuck, I don't want to have be next to uh, Karine Jean Pierre and fucking Roland Martin. Oh no, sure. <laughs> that's that's why he has a reaction when you say reparations. Yeah, somebody brought that up in the chat. They said that's why Rowan is so fucking pissed about reparations. Right. Why? Well, how? Why is? Why is he? He's he. So he does not agree with that. No, he no, does uh, not. Yeah. He doesn't agree with it. But isn't he, if his father is Friedman, wouldn't he still be a part of reparations? Well, he's a Democrat. Like it's almost like conservatives don't believe in reparations. They don't even <laughs> some of them don't believe in slavery. He probably thinks he wouldn't qualify because he's half Haitian, but actually he would. But he probably don't know that. Yeah, because I thought it had to be one parent, at least one parent. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah at least one parent. If you had kids. They would receive it through your heritage. Yeah, that's I. I 
This is interesting. You know, Roland Martin, to me, again, I just feel like he's just one of those people that, again, has held us back. Like, he still wants us to, after everything that has happened, you guys, I can guarantee you Roland Martin is going to tell you to vote for Joe Biden. Of course. Even T.Y.T. Even, even uh, uh, what's their name? Uh, bro- bro- breaking Points, because... CJ, I think it was CJ Dick, or it was a, either a past video or, or pre, a previous uh, live stream where they talked about it. Like Crystal Ball, she's pro Palestine right now, but she was pro Biden. I mean, wait, wait till fucking November comes in as the those that's days get creeper, creeper, creeper. Like it's gonna be like Joe Biden versus Trump. He's gonna tell you go vote Joe Biden. Yeah, because it's a part of their brand. See, this is why. Um... You know, sometimes like I would like kick myself for the fact that I started my show as late as I did. Like I didn't start during during the Bernie movement, partly because my Internet was wacky. That was when I was still in Somerville and our Internet would go in and out all the time. And it had nothing to do with the service. It was just our landlord was too freaking lazy to actually fix the why have them fix the wire on the roof. He wouldn't let. Comcast go on the roof to fix the wire. Not Comcast, sorry. What was RCN? RCN. He wouldn't let RCN go onto the roof of the building to fix the wire. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, it was what it was. But I, I remember like when I first did start my show, I used to, I was kicking myself and I was like, I should have started much earlier before a lot of the censorship happened, before um what do you call it? Before uh, a lot of the suppression started to take place. And all that kind of stuff, because the reality is it's a lot harder for those of us that are that started after the Bernie campaigns. It was that's why we don't grow as fast. Like. Right. So I remember kicking myself for that, but I'm looking back on it and I'm honestly glad that I didn't because I was a part of the Bernie movement. Like I supported Bernie Sanders. And the thing is, if I would have had a show during that time, I would have told you to support Bernie Sanders as well. And then now looking back on it, I'm glad that I actually didn't because honestly, Bernie like sold us out, right? Like the Democratic Party is a sellout and stuff like that. And I just think back to how so many people were willing to just bow, I guess, just take the knee, like bend the knee and say, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and support Biden because I don't want Donald Trump. And what would have happened, you know, because for me, I was just like, you know what? That was it for me. Like, that was it. I said, I'm not going to try this again. This is this is my last time giving this a go. And, uh, you know, if it if they they screw screw things up again, if they try to screw them over again or whatever, this doesn't work out. I'm not going to do this again. And so for me, that was it. But looking back on it, because I feel like those people that started during that time, they they heavily rely on that. So again, that's a part of that's their brand. So now they got to stick with that. I don't think beating yourself over it would have been like uh, I don't think you needed to beat yourself over it because at some point you would have realized Bernie Sanders is a fraud. So I don't think you need to basically say, "Well, I'm glad I didn't start back then," because you would have found out Bernie Sanders is a fraud. He's he's not a fighter. Bernie Sanders is a bunch of things. He's a racist. He's an Islamophobe. He's basically he's pro-Israel. He's he's pro Israel. He's he's a Zionist himself. So the the, the Bernie thing, like people need to stop beating themselves over Bernie Sanders. It's like just walk away from the Democratic Party and just go independent. 
No, but what I'm saying is I'm glad I'm looking back on it. And I'm glad that I didn't start during that time just because if I would have, then, you know, I think I, I don't, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is I feel like I, because I didn't start during that time, I didn't have a brand around that. So when I did start, like I was more free to kind of just talk about what I wanted to talk about and not try to like do the dim. Yeah, I get, I get you. You know, that's one thing a uh, Jank brought up in the, the thing with Norlo Martin. And he said, I'm not a sexist. I'm not this and that. Does Jank forget that around when he was having that beef with Jimmy, that the whole thing, the blog thing came up. Did he forget those 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 blog thing those blogs that he wrote a long time ago? Like you say, he's not a sexist, or the fact that there's a clip going on there where he had well, a, a well. Those were well. That's a good point, Ashura, because when he said like fake allegations, those weren't fake allegations against him. I forgot about that. I forgot to mention that tonight, but that is another good point. Like he did say, well, the media tried to smear him with fake allegations, but those allegations weren't fake. Right. Plus there is the other part where he did some sexism himself is when, I don't know if you remember, there used to be an Asian girl that was working for TYT. Now she does, she does streaming on uh, what they call it, the place where you go play video games. Uh, was it, uh, I forgot what it's called. It's a place where basically even uh, Hassan Pocket, well, Twitch, yeah, she's doing Twitch. Yeah, Jen. And there's a point where Jen basically says they were doing like this show behind the scenes and they said, oh, uh, I got contacted by Playboy. They wanted me to basically, uh, you know, to uh, be a model for them. And he was like, he was like very interested in a creepy way. And he was like, uh, like I said, no, they wanted me to post naked. I said, no, he was like, What's your price? How much would how, how much would you basically want to get naked? How much? What's your price? Everyone has a price. What's your price? And she's like, well, that's kind of creepy. I don't want to do that. It's like, oh, come on. He's like, oh, come on. Everyone has a price. And I'm like, he, wanted, he probably wanted to know what she looks like underneath. Well, I mean, there were some, you know, I mean, there were some things that he had said that he had, he said in the past. Uh, and it wasn't like it was that long ago either. Like that's yeah. that's the other thing. But for him to say that the allegations against him were fake and they smeared him with fa those things weren't fake. Like you did say those things. Yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. why. That's the reason why he had to step down from Justice Democrats. Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised Roman didn't even bring up the horse thing. <laughs> I mean, that would have been funny if he had to answer for the horse comments. <laughs> <laughs> because conservatives would have loved that comment about the horse. They would have said, oh my God, that's the devil. This man is the devil right now. He wants to have sex with horses. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fucking funny. And then Roland Martin, like, oh my God, like the fact that he's so up for massa Joe Biden. I'm like, really, but, but Joe Biden, Joe Biden has to be, he has to be the nominee. I'm like, and then they say Beto or Wark. I'm like Beto or Jork or Joke. That's what I called him. Out of out of all the people, he said Beto O'Rourke, a corporate Democrat who was taking money from Exxon Mogul. Mobile. I mean, like this dude was taking money from fossil fuel companies, and that's the person who you thought was a firebrand. 
this rich yeah. guy cosplaying as a politician. <laughs> yeah, because Beto O'Rourke is just like I don't. I would be surprised if he comes out gay. Is just like that other black guy that turns out to be gay, and he was caught in a hotel with a dude where he was like drunk, like he was down on crack or some shit. Andrew Gillum, where oh. both, both these motherfuckers almost got, oh, they almost won their race, almost. And they just tanked it over one fucking thing. They brought in the Democrats, they brought in Hillary, and they fucking tanked them. They were beating, like, like Gillum was beating DeSantis five points, ten points ahead. He was beating him with the right ads, the right talking points, and he basically flunked it. When, when Hillary, they people saw Hillary, and it was like, oh fuck out. Same thing with uh, with, <laughs> with 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 the uh. uh Beto O'Rourke, like Beto O'Rourke, he started bringing up the guns shit. No, no, the guns, I think it was like the presidential one. But he fucked it up. I'm like, then he ran for president. Yeah. I think Beto O'Rourke like wanted it so bad it was ridiculous. Like his his best shot, honestly, when he decided to remember he ran against Ted Cruz. Um, instead of running for president, I thought people were calling for him to run for governor. Uh, I thought they were calling for him to run for governor. I mean, he has a better shot at governor. I mean, if he was the governor, he could basically control the state in a sense. I'm like, that's the best thing you could get. But even that guy doesn't think far ahead. Right. What's but he doing now? Like, is, is he still in office? In office for what? No, is he still in office after the president? Or did he go back? Or basically, is he still there? No, he's... From what I understand, no. Beto O'Rourke doesn't have a political position. Okay. What killed me is when he was in the cover of that magazine and he said, I was born for this. I'm like, man, he, he reminded me of a white Obama. That's what he reminded me of. Yeah, and then when he tried to speak Spanish where he couldn't speak Spanish, I'm like, that Spanish oh was cringe. God. That Spanish was cringe. And, and then <laughs> he did the entire talk in Spanish. I'm like, oh, I, I, I see, I love Latinos, so I'm going to speak Spanish the entire fucking time. Well, everybody that's speaking English. Cory Booker did the same thing, like during um, that debate. Him and Cory Booker. Don't remind me about that Cory Booker, uh, Sabrina. Like I, every time you say Cory Booker, I remember that part when the Palestinian people were in that room and he couldn't figure out how to counter the chance, and he just made shit up as he doing it, and then <laughs> he gave up. Yeah, as for Nikki Nemrata Nazi Haley. Uh, this woman, like the amount of hatred this woman has for Muslims, I don't know why. I, I think it stems from the Pakistan thing where Britain like kicked all the Muslims and they gave them Pakistan and then they, they, they kept like, uh, they, they kept India for themselves. I'm like, I, I don't really understand this hatred for Muslims. And, and she's basically, she's Sikh and they gave her the same hatred. Right. And that, that was the part, that was the point that I wanted people to really see is that Nikki Haley also was a part of this, this same type of hatred because of her the ethnicity and her family's religion. Now, she converted, but because of her family's religion, she endured the same type of hatred, especially when she was growing up in South Carolina. You got to remember, Nikki Haley's in her 50s. So during the time when she was growing up in South Carolina, South Carolina isn't even as tolerant as most people would want it to be today, let alone think about how less tolerant it would have been back then. 
So she dealt with a lot of that same hatred. And now it's almost like she has no problem projecting that same hatred onto other groups. Yeah, because the part when you said her daughter's dating a black guy, I'm like, yeah, he's on her TikTok. Look it up. <laughs> yeah, he's on, her, he's on her TikTok, and that's the and that's what I was saying. I was like, now see, you know, and I, I was wondering about that. I was wondering, like, I wonder if her daughter or any other family member said something to her, like, look, um, you need to correct the statement that you gave. But the thing is, that's this is who Nikki Haley is. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Nikki Haley has spent a good portion of her lifetime, particularly in in South Carolina, trying to appeal and cater to white people. And she'll put any other any other group under the bus if that means that she can get ahead politically. Yeah, because it seems like you really have a race problem in the U.S. to the point where you can't even say slavery. Because I I couldn't I couldn't understand whether the guy that asked her the question was he pro pro. Was he like against slavery, against talking about slavery, or was he one of those people say, "No, you have to mention slavery because we we did things to them, so you have to mention that." I don't. Think, that a- I don't think he was. Um, I don't think he was like pro uh, slavery. I think I'm not really pro slavery. You know, I'm talking about like when people don't want to talk about slavery, like they don't want to talk about it in some states. Like he said, like, well, at least you didn't bring up slavery. Because I was wondering, like, what, is he like? No, I, to... I think he genuinely was trying to get her to talk about it because. Okay, he, okay, okay. In in a state like New Hampshire, that's what I was trying to tell you guys about New England. In a state like New Hampshire, in New England, like this is not something that is commonly spoken about because, for the most part, with the exception of Rhode Island, which I I told you guys, there's a whole series about this on Rhode Island how they finally came to a a sort of healing and understanding about the slave trade in Rhode Island because they didn't really want to acknowledge that or talk about that because it's very, it's taboo here because as part of like New England, like we're supposed to be like the more um, uh, progressive and tolerant uh, region of the United States. Like we're supposed to be known for being more tolerant and not having that type of past, but we do have that type of past. So in some of those states like New Hampshire, also especially Maine, these kind of things weren't talked about, or if they were talked about, they didn't go in depth about it. I told you, I had a friend of mine that moved, she moved from Maine to North Carolina, and she had never even seen a Confederate flag. Now, that was surprising to me because I started asking her questions like, what do you mean you haven't seen a Confederate flag? Hasn't it been in your your textbooks when you studied history, like in school, like, no, they didn't really focus on that. This is what she told me. She said they did not really focus on the history of slavery. She's like, like when they talked about history, like it was mentioned, but they didn't go into it like they do in the, in the Southern schools. Right. So she said they didn't really go into it. They didn't talk about it as much. And also again, like some of those schools go into those topics during black history month and only black history month, which it should be integrated into the entire curriculum. Yeah. And that's why people are mad about the, what do you call it? Uh, it, it was some, something, uh, is it CRT? Well, yeah, it's like also if you live in a state like Maine where there's there's more black people there now, but during this time, 
the first time I went to Maine and I, I went back home with her, the first time I went, I didn't see any black people, not one, but there, there are some there now because they're actually paying people to move to Maine because a lot of the, the dentists and doctors, once the pandemic started, they started retiring and they realized, oh shit, we don't have enough dentists or doctors in the state. So they were paying people with certain uh, professions to move there to Maine. But the thing is, again, like I said, some of those schools like in Maine don't have a Black History Month because there's no Black people at the school. So they really don't know a lot of these things. Yeah, because it was kind of weird seeing CNN defend Nikki Haley. I'm like, the fuck is CNN talking about? Like, trying to blame the guy or blame the voter. Like, it's not the fault that the voter is, like, basically brainwashed. It's It's the media. It's the politicians. It's their upbringing. Nobody tries to correct it. They just want to keep it just hidden in the closet or buried on the ground. Because that's who the donors are backing. The donors are backing and supporting Nikki Haley. That's why they don't criticize her as much. And that's why that woman was able to say what she said to Caitlin uh, Collins with little pushback. Like, it just, it's all about money. Yeah, and uh, I want to thank you for the thing about the, I'm going to bring it back to the Israeli thing. I always heard people make that comment about, uh, Israel is the is the brightest country in the world. We we love gay people. We love the LGBTQ people. Unlike the Muslims, and I remember Nick talking about like the, the Muslim. Just because the Muslim is anti-LGBTQ doesn't mean like they want to kill them or anything. But I want to thank you for that because I always find it weird when they bring it up. Like how how much of it is true that they are actually pro LGBTQ? Oh, Roger, are you trying to? Yeah, no, I was I was just gonna say um, I just wanted to go through through uh, what was said real quick on the show. So, and you was talking about the housing, right? So yeah, besides a CBI outlawing private equity from owning housing, but also outlaw real estate speculation. So that was one. Also, when you was talking about the subscription services, right? So. I understand why they, you know, like these different papers have the paywall because they, because um, the monthly subscriptions. But I'll, I'll say this: I'd rather depend, I'd rather that they depend on us than on advertisers, because we all know how the censorship works. So here's the thing: I don't mind paying for subscriptions. Just start writing articles about the income to cost of living gap so that we can afford to pay for your damn services. Three, I, uh, the, dealing with Nimrata, I will say this. They hate us so much when they come here, they'll ignore and endure racism towards them than to team up with us. You can't be for the American flag and for the Confederate flag at the same time, okay? Because one rebelled against the country. Exactly. Okay. That's that's my point. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So either it, one or the other. Now, despite South Carolina, and you, you know this means down, despite South Carolina being one of 19 states where voters don't register under a party, only politicians do. If we didn't have political parties, Republicans would be free of this base that would be driving them to be like, oh, I got to be for slavery or whatever. She, but check this out. 
I want you to, I want you I was wondering if anybody caught this. She literally said the only role of government is to preserve your freedoms, then followed that up with what do you want me to say about slavery? The polar opposite of freedom. Yeah, that shit made no sense. Like where she couldn't say the reason why is because they owned people. It was slavery. Like she said freedom, like what the fuck yeah, are you talking the- about? Freedom and the, the right to own anything. Like you notice they used to say that bullshit, like uh when they talk about slavery, they say, Oh, it was about slavery. That's not what we left. We left because we wanted freedom and all that bullshit. No, you didn't want to pay a fucking price for living in another country. It's like when I see Americans living here, they have to pay taxes while they live here. I'm like, why don't you just get rid of your citizenship? That way you don't have to pay taxes. We want freedom to make sure that we don't give freedom to those to other, to those other people. <laughs> so, but here's the thing, right? Dealing with uh, Jank and Roland. So Jank believes in a top-down strategy starting in D.C., okay? By the way, you know why Roland got fired from CNN, right? Because he basically gave the secret... Some he, he thought it was the secret um, talking points for the for the debate, and it turns out it was the wrong thing. He passed it to Donna Brazil. Turns out it wasn't that right. So pretty much the debate between Hillary and Bernie, they were feeding Hillary questions to 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 help him her against uh, what's his name Bernie, right? Yeah. So here's the thing. So he, so Bernie uh, Jenks said. Passing bills is not only, he said passing bills is the only thing that matters, but that's not the only thing that matters. What also matters is enforcing the laws that are already on the books. And we have a whole bunch of laws on the books we can use to hit back against corporate. But, but it's so focused on, because the thing is, it's not guaranteed that you're going to, you know, you got to work with Congress and there's all this other stuff that you got to do with Congress. And sometimes, a lot of times the bill gets warded down before they sign it, so on and so forth. But you do have the freedom of the executive office, not just of executive orders and executive action, whatever the case is. You do have the freedom to enforce the laws that are already on the books. You know, you could give East Palestine health care just like Obama did Libby Montana. You can... We have antitrust enforcement um, laws on the books. You can start breaking up these companies. You know what I mean? There's, you can say, I, I'm going to appoint a health and human services secretary that's going to give grant federal waivers to states that wish to pursue their own single-payer health care initiative, law, or whatever, in case I'm not able to get it through. You see what I'm saying? So, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff they can they, they can do so you know what i mean so that's and you got more freedom because you already got the law on your side the laws are just not being enforced the progressive laws are not being enforced yeah that's those are really good points roger anything else ashura yeah um well i don't know if you know this but Alex jones was on jimmy today for some reason um he, he it was funny because they let him talk but Alex Jones basically thinks he's a truth teller, but he's just spitting like 10% truth and 90% bullshit. He even basically put his two of his own books on the show just to buy it. I'm like, nobody's going to buy that shit unless they're an Alex Jones fan. And the weird shit in that, on that show, he said that um, it's not the reason why 
he's being sued is not the 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 what do they call it the people of uh, the people where he told people that the, the, the their kids were uh, were Sandy child Hook. actors. Sandy Hook. Yeah, yeah. He said it's not Sandy Hook. The reason why he's getting sued for something else. He brought the name Dana White on it's because it's, uh, he said that that's the reason why he got sued. And then he, he then he talked about some bullshit about um, they're taking everything from him. They took a cat from him that's worth a thousand dollars. Then he a said, cat? "Yeah, a cat." Yeah, he said the judge took my cat. The cat <laughs> he has to pay a thousand dollars to get the cat back. I'm like, nigga, are you serious? You you can't get you, you can't find a thousand dollars to to get your cat back. No, I'm gonna ask my dad for a thousand dollar loan to get my cat back. I, I I'm broke. He's saying a bunch of bullshit. But I'm like, bro, what happened? All that money you made for those snake oil salt salesmen, like like the uh, uh like fucking muscle muscle enhancements bullshit. Ashura, I I felt there was a lot of. Truth mixed in with a lot of bullshit. Well, that's how he you speaks. Know, uh, even Nick says you know that. What I mean? Like, there was some things where, when he was talking about the World Economic Forum and and like Facebook reading your mind and all that different type of stuff, I think that's plausible. When he was talking about the Bilderbergers and the and the Rothschilds and so on and so forth. <laughs> Remember the part he brings up Israel and then he says that Israel is, is bad. Oh, the Israel shouldn't have done that. And then he, he goes on a pro-Israel spill. I called yeah, him a psyop, yeah, yeah. and I called him a psyop in the chat, and a lot of the people in the chat were mad because a lot of people weren't buying it. Most people weren't buying that bullshit. Oh, Pete, I, I don't look at the chat. I, I didn't know. know I guess it. like I didn't know that um, he was selling books again. <laughs> oh, I was like, bro, he needs the money. Like he, they're bleeding him out. He says he's broke. I'm pretty sure he's got some stash of money somewhere. Yeah. So oh, sorry. He did, and to be fair for people who may not be aware, he did apologize uh, eventually. Oh, he was forced to. One thing that's funny is that people in the chat were begging Jimmy to apologize for being for being an animagus for spitting in his face one day, and it got weird to the point they they talked about how um, he said he didn't feel the water coming on his face. Jimmy threw it in his mouth, and it sounded like some porn shit. (laughs) <laughs> it was yeah. a weird. It was weird. It's like you, you know, I didn't. I didn't feel the water in my face. It went into my mouth. I'm like, go. You talking about some porn, gay porn shit? Yeah, I like I said, there was there was things about. I mean, that 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 thing was like three hours. He ended up doing it for like three hours, but uh, yeah, there, I mean, was I, some, I logged up, some, and when I came back, I'm like, bro, you guys are still talking. Yeah, there there were some things in there that I was just like, kind of like, okay, I could see that. That's plausible or whatever, but. You know, when when they started talking about, he asked him about aliens, and then he went on off on some other shit that I couldn't understand what the hell he was talking about. But you know, like it's like the last half hour, it's like, uh, okay. Was there any <laughs> pushback during the interview? Uh, I think it was the, it's just them talking. But there was some pushback, but I didn't see most of it because I didn't know. I I came in twenty minutes late, then I couldn't watch all of it, so I'll probably wait until the video comes out fully. I guess for me, I just don't take Alex Jones seriously. Yeah, I'm like, I don't yeah, take him seriously either. I'm like, yeah, like ten percent like bullshit, ninety percent nonsense. Yeah, no, I agree with that, and that's why I was asking about pushback because usually when, and you know, I'm sure we all are familiar with Noam Chomsky and manufacturing consent. When you have three hours and you just allow Alex Jones to just spew everything. I'm not saying that he needs to push back, but if you're not going to push back, then that's what you're doing. You're implicitly co-signing what he's saying. 
because when mm-hmm. others come on, you, you, you're seething and foaming at the mouth to yeah. push back at every little thing. But with him, Tucker, Vivek, literally no pushback. They can just say no, whatever they, they want. They won't push back on the Vivek part. Like once they got to the Palestine shit, they were they were kind of okay with the censorship. I thought you meant from the uh, from the viewers was their pushback. You meant from Jimmy. Oh, got it. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. there was there was no pushback from the Vivek one. I think he's talking about Alex Jones. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. The Alex Jones one, I couldn't tell if there was. I think he just let Alex Jones talk. So people who know he's a bullshitter, they'll they'll know he's a bullshitter because he was there to sell the books. I was like, oh, come on, you're not going to let him sell that bullshit on your show? We're assuming that they will know. When he uses his platform and just allows him to say nothing and doesn't... If I say 2 plus 2 is 5 and no one corrects me on the panel, that's assuming that they're agreeing with it. Implicitly, that's just how it goes. So when he goes on there and says everything and and he has a massive following, I'm sure there were a lot of live viewers at the time, not everyone is informed. Uh, you know, that's why they target low information voters or viewers so that when they do see it, a lot of people co-sign. And this just is not just about Jimmy, but people and Sabby talks about it a lot, like about people falling in love with uh, politicians and content creators. So they'll assume everything is right because I'm usually Jimmy is yelling at people if something is wrong, but he's just allowing this person to go there high-hying and kicking it up. We can't just assume that everyone in the audience is going to uh, have a contrarian view when Jimmy or his staff won't even present one. Uh, That chat had about, I believe, 26,000 people were there, so mostly in the chat. It was like Half half, like most people were saying he's a fraud. So most people were saying the fraud, but uh, it was mostly some Alex Jones fans. They will probably buy that bullshit, but most people that were there, they weren't buying it. They called him fraud. They say talk about Palestine. They called him out on the Israel thing. Well, that's good, but uh, typically the the host. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get, I get you, I get you. But I feel like if you wanted is, to let them hang What in. usually happens is uh, when you're you're having an interview, when you're interviewing someone, if you agree with that person, like on 90, like 8% of the issues, you're not going to have as much pushback. If you don't agree with that person, yes, there should be pushback. So when I, when I was criticized for simply interviewing Jill Stein, it was like, to me, that did not make any sense because obviously I agree with Jill Stein on like 99.99999% of the issues. So how much pushback is there going to be? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I guess it depends on the topic of the alien thing. I didn't know they, they did I didn't know there was an alien story, so I guess the things that don't matter, so they don't push back on it, but the things that they did, they talked about it. I think they might be pushed by the Israel thing. But the other shit, if they're just talking shit on the other topics, that's probably them. Even the Alex Jones, he was talking about how he was up front on everything. And there's a point he, he didn't make no fucking sense when he was talking about the CIA or the, 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 the censorship. And then he praised Elon Musk. I'm like, what the fuck is Elon Musk? Have Why are you praising Elon Musk? Elon Musk is not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a because they're all because a lot of these people praising Elon Musk are getting some type of benefit or amplification from Elon Musk on Twitter. That's why. 
Elon Musk has been heavily promoting right-wing accounts and right-wing voices on Twitter and heavily suppressing left content creators on Twitter. I'm just keeping it real. Okay. I'm going to let uh, you know, Eric. I'm just going to log off and let Eric go in. Okay. You, you know, um, KRS gave him a shout out back in the days because he was on the show a couple of times. So they're pretty, they're, they, I mean, I don't know how their relationship is now, but if you go back like 10 years or like a decade or whatever, he even gave him a shout out on one of his songs. You know, back then I didn't know who Alex Jones was or Infowars was, but you know, you know, they seem pretty cool because <laughs> I think it was about like anti-government stuff. Well, it kind of reminds me of when rappers gave Donald Trump a shout out back in the day in their songs and their music videos, um, but not so much. When Donald Trump, Trump, Trump let me in now. Yep. Yep. What's up, Eric? How are you? Hey, long time no talk. <laughs> What's going on? Not much. Um, just chilling tonight. Um <sighs> Really not doing much. Um, I guess I could talk about something random. Um, the fun situation with teaching right now. And not even just the shortages, but just like dealing in a classroom. And especially with dealing with you know, with especially my current situation where I'm teaching in an all girls type of situation and and you're really dealing with more mental health stuff and it, it's it's um it's diff it's difficult sometimes to like just watch a lot of like mental health breakdowns and stuff and and you're you're all you're trying to teach a curriculum all at the same time. It's it's such it's just such a contradiction at this point. Mm. I hear you. I know it's it's tough out there in in education world. And and what's what's fun is that because the curriculum is all curriculum maps are all pre-planned out. There's no real room for adjustment. You need to be in certain areas within certain time frames, and this, that, and the third. And there's because classroom times are shortened. You know, there's not enough time to do any real reteaching. Um, especially, especially with me teaching math. You know, there's no. I don't get to literally teach my students how to be math students so, right quick i taught at a girls school and i taught math can you tell me specifically what problems you're like it, it's really mostly problems that i'm have that i've had over the course of teaching period and i i guess what i'm seeing and and maybe you can back me up on this jonathan maybe you've seen this too um where it's just, it's just like, you could be going over something that should, 
that should take like a week and then you end up on it for two weeks or, you, you know, stuff like that. Like you, it should be something simple that you're on for a week. You end up on it for like two, two, almost two and a half weeks. And then sometimes admin looks at you like, what the hell are you doing? And I've, well, ha- have you explained to admin why it takes you that long? Because, you yeah. know, teaching math, and I'm, and we can both speak to this, we don't get through the whole entire curriculum. I already told my admin, like, the last unit that we cover, we're not going to get to it. I already told them, like, we're not going to get to it. Then I can do about it. I mean, the kids barely can do simple math. What do you expect me to do? So have you told admin, like, listen, this is what it is. It's the problem that we're facing, especially with the pandemic. I'm pretty sure that you started before the pandemic. So yeah. we know that the pandemic just made the problems worse. So right. I- yeah, I started way before the pandemic. Um, and, and that whole simple math issue, yeah, I have students that say out loud, I'm like, dude, you're, you're in high school, just shut up. Um, that I don't even know my times tables. Um, if I were you, I wouldn't have said that out loud, but... Uh, no, I... <sighs> I've been fired for, as a teacher before because I spoke up. I expect to. I'm not, no, I will speak up. I taught at a girls' school for three weeks, and I said, no, thank you. I'm not doing this. One thing I will say is different between a girls' school and a co-ed school is that girls, respectfully, Sabby, are more emotional, and they will fight. They and they cause drama with each other, too. Yes. It's so stupid. Like, <laughs> God. But it happened. Like, uh, just a question. Could you guys speak about the class sizes? Because I'm out here in the Bay Area and Ooh. the public, most of the, now they're averaging like 34 to 38 students. I had a, a oh. parent that took her kid out of private school because she was complaining that they had 25 students and that was too much. Could you gentlemen speak? Oh yeah. Um, I've had, I had a coworker one time that had a class of 40 kids, 40. And I'm like, isn't this a safety hazard? Um, it's like, yeah, I kind of told I have been about it and nothing really changed. And <laughs> That situation, he was the only history teacher from middle school in the building because it was an alternative center. And we had a bunch of little, little like, hard-headed middle schoolers. So, yeah, there's not really much he can do but keep pointing it out to admin, and then admin feel, really apparently can't do anything about it for some reason. Oh, Brian, so, you yeah. need to keep on talking shit about me in the chat. I don't care. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, it's all good. Um, it, it's typically the class sizes for me, like the largest I've had has been 30. That's the largest I've ever had. And, but when I hear like, like, first of all, these large class sizes shouldn't even be normal. It should be at most capped to like 10. At most. Eric, my because there's no isn't huh? really much with class size. Um, I've had maybe the most I've had is like sixty two, but I had uh, this was remote though. I had a co teacher with in, in there with me. My issue with class sizes is when you have half of the kids or more than half the kids have IEPs or five hundred four, or some of them are yeah. L's or ENLs. Yeah. It's yeah. like, well, what the f- 
fuck am I supposed to do with that? Like, I can manage 30 kids at a time for some reason. But if half of them have IEPs, I can't do nothing with them. For those who don't know, that means IEP stands for Individual Education Plan. Individualized Education Plan. Yep. It's so, and it's so stupid that legally you have to follow all these different IEPs. And then you're trying to, you're, you're trying to go back and figure out, hey, what is this kid's IEP? What is that? So I was like, you know what? Let me incorporate all this into my teaching. Cause let me incorporate the visual, the auditory, all the kinesthetic, all that shit. Let me just incorporate all of this into my teaching. Because it's too much of a hassle to have to go through and look and see, oh, this kid needs this, and that kid needs that, bruh. I don't even like, I don't even like giving tests. It's also very time consuming um, for people who are not aware, like to do an IEP. Like, um, that didn't even exist. Like, like, when I was in school, when I was growing up, that didn't exist, but that's something that has been added to. <laughs> tell everyone what an IEP is, y'all. Individualized education plan. Individualized what? Education plan. So if you have a student, for example, that may be struggling uh, in one area, you have to basically tailor, instead of trying to use your lesson plan that you have for the entire class, you actually have to create a separate plan for that individual student. And depending on how many students that you have in that classroom, that are on an IEP that that will tell you how many different IE plans you have to make. Like I said, it's it's time consuming, you know. And I'm all for like educating the students and stuff like that. But my thing is, if you have a class size of like 30 students and you have students in that class on an IEP, then you need to have some help. Those teachers need to have like a teacher's aide, a teacher assistant, or whatever. But second of all, these class sizes should not be that large. That's another big part of the problem. Yeah, it's the pay is part of the problem too. Because out here, uh, if you work at uh, In and Out Burger, I don't know if you guys have that in your area, but In and Out Burger starts at between twenty one to twenty three dollars. Some of the teachers' assistants they're paying them like fifteen to seventeen dollars, so they can barely get anyone. And a lot of times they are bringing back subs, and they're letting uh people without credentials, you know, fill in the roles. You can get us up. Can I tell you guys a funny teacher story? Sure. Because you mentioned substitute teachers, so I got to tell this story. When I was in high school, uh, my freshman year, we had a sub, we had a sub, right? So I don't know if everybody had homeroom in high school, but like at my school, we had homeroom. And homeroom was just basically a place that you went to where they would take attendance to make sure, hey, you're here for the day or whatever. And you would hear announcements like school announcements and all that kind of stuff at homeroom, right? So like we had a sub uh, named Mr. Hall and I'll never forget Mr. Hall. Mr. Hall was really cool. Everybody liked him. He was one of those cool teachers that all the students kind of like get along with. Like he's like one of us, that kind of thing. So like my teacher was out because of uh, maternity leave at that point in time. So what happened was Mr. Hall got so close to the students that by the time when it was time for him to leave, because he was a long-term sub for those people who don't know, when it was time for him to leave, like people gave him gifts and stuff like that. Like all the students were like, we're gonna miss you, da, da, da. And when our teacher came back, like nobody wanted to talk to her. Like it was just, it was the craziest thing. 
And we were like, we miss Mr. Hall. And like Mr. Hall, basically in that time that she was on maternity leave, he basically became a part of the family. Okay. Plus she wasn't nice. <laughs> she was not a nice person, but sometimes that was another thing is like, cause you have like substitutes that will sub for like maybe that day when a teacher is like sick, but then you have long-term subs that actually come in and they teach the class during a time when a teacher may be like on maternity leave or maybe they have short-term disability or something like that. Yeah. That's, but I, I one of the things like, especially, especially with this generation of kids, like that whole mean teacher shit is, is done is dust in the wind. Um, I, I just tell them all, look, you already, you already know what to expect. Here's everything we got to do, or at least try to get to. You work with me, I work with you, and that's the end of it. I don't need to yell, I don't need to do all that fussing, none of that. And typically, I haven't had a problem. Behavior-wise, it's, it's just the content and getting it to be understood. And obviously, Eric, what, as someone... What, do you, um, what subjects do you teach in math, or what grade levels do you teach? Um, really now, because I'm at a, I'm at a really, I didn't, I'm at a detention center right now. Um, so I'm teaching girls from all over from seventh to 12th. So I'm, I'm going, I'm jumping from like seventh grade math to algebra two, basically. Thank you. Um, that's gonna be really hard. Ooh, you're not. Jeez. Well, what? So, given that you, it's a detention center. Most likely, if I'm not mistaken, girls who end up in detention centers usually didn't go to class a lot, and if they did, they were not in class. If you give them, they were in school, but they yeah. didn't go to class. Yeah. So yeah. they are missing a lot of the foundational things. So how can it give you those expectations, knowing that a lot of them have gaps? I mean, I when I taught. Algebra two. I had a student who had a close to grade level, second grade. I'm like, and I told her, "Where am I supposed to do with a girl with second grade level teaching her algebra two? It's not going to work." So, yeah. what, what, respectfully, what kind of things are you bringing up to them? Letting them know, like, hey, here's the reality of the situation. This is not going to work. Um, what can you do to help me? Because if you don't voice that, they're going to constantly say, "Oh, you need to do this. You need to do that." I let any school I worked at, I let them know, like, listen. Here's the reality of the situation. If I have this going on, this is what's going to happen. But if I have this kind of help, if I have this type of support, then yeah, my students can get to the level they want to. My When I taught college algebra, before I taught it, the kids, the previous year, only 23% of them actually passed and got credit. When I taught the course, I told, them, I, I told my principal, I said straight up, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, and I'm doing that. If I'm not doing that, I'm not teaching it. And she said, okay, yeah, you can do that. 75% of my students got college credit. So you have to put it in there like, listen, if you want me to succeed, I need this and I need that. So what have you asked for or what can you ask? Yeah, I've asked for practically everything. Um, uh, I've asked for, for example, my principal with the situation that I have now, be, he tells me to step out of a lot of the stuff like, a lot of the old, uh, a lot of the disciplinary stuff, and let the facility handle that, and let the and let the facility staff that's in the room handle that. 
because it's not just it's me teaching yes but it's also facility staff that are with them every day or somebody in the room with me so when when a student is having like an outburst temper tantrum like because the original plan was to separate them between middle and high school right so that plan completely fell apart because x girl can't be in the room with y girl and y girl can't be in the room with z girl and and i I look at my principal and other and other co-staff that aren't there because because he's the principal of all of djj so I look at him and go, what you want me to do? <laughs> because I basically can't do what I, what we agreed to do with you, facility, and everybody. We all sat down, had a meeting, and it, it agreed to this, but then I'm basically rendered powerless to actually teach what I set out to teach. Yeah, that's the tough part, Eric. Um, that's honestly why I, because for me, that was one thing I noticed when I was doing my observations at the Elliott school, it was like, you didn't really get to, you didn't really get to teach what you wanted to teach or really how you wanted to teach it. And to me, I was just like, well, I don't want to be a robot. And that's, that's why, like, there's a lot of bureaucracy and education. I'm sure as you know, Eric, Yeah, that's why I pivoted from, K through 12 to higher education where I had a little bit more leeway in higher ed, but even in higher ed, there's a lot of bureaucracy as well. There's a lot of red tape and like just to make little small decisions, you have to go through all these different channels and it was just a mess. And then not only that, but they don't really want to pay shit. Like I'm just keeping it real with you guys. Like, please give kudos to your educators or your children's educators because they, they're not paid what they should be paid. And I knew like when I was doing my observations, the teachers that I did observations with, like they were actually paying for their own classroom supplies. Like the school doesn't pay for those things. And so that's coming out of your salary. And it's just, it's, and then you have to deal with, you know, you're dealing with the classroom of kids, different personalities. And then even with that, like I said, they added all these extra requirements that you have to do you have to have if there's a kid that's going to be on an IEP then you have to do a separate program for those students instead of just adding more resources to the school to help the teachers and to help those kids they want the teacher to take on everything as a teacher it's like you're not just a teacher you're also supposed to be a babysitter you're also supposed to be a counselor you're a nurse when you need to be like it's just it's so much and they just don't want to pay these teachers what they should be paid and it's really sad and they want teachers to have more requirements now like in massachusetts to teach in boston you need to have a master's degree and it's it's like that in a lot of places here in massachusetts but then they add more requirements they want you to have the esl certification they want you to have the ell certification they want you to have all this other stuff that you have to pay for out of your pocket and teachers are paid so little and I'm sorry, where are you are you teaching your field mommy asking huh say that again I think he's asking where are you oh, oh um I'm in Florida 
that I'm in the I'm in this I'm in the same city Deion Sanders was born and raised in. Mm. Uh, oh, I mm. the southern states. I wouldn't know to tell you about that. That's totally different. Would you agree that with that, Sabi? Because we're up in the New England states and we have a little bit more leeway. Not because, like, I'm not in the union, but I, when I was in union, it didn't mean anything. But teaching in southern states, I ooh, I don't know how y'all do it. I mm. pay, some some of us the pay is some even of us lower is, down south. The pay is even lower down there. I mean, yeah. I I knew if you look up the salary scale, because guys, it's public information. If you look up like the salary scale for like North Carolina public school teachers, South Carolina, et cetera, it's so low. And I don't think people realize that like I knew teachers like when I was in high school, I had teachers that had second jobs. Teaching is supposed to be a profession. Like obviously you have to go to college. You have to have at least get a bachelor's degree to teach. No teacher in this country should have to have a second job. And that's why. Like some of my friends went abroad to teach. One of my friends from high school, she went to teach in South Korea for years because they paid for her apartment. They paid her more money. So she taught there for years, saved up her money. And then she came back home and she started teaching here and she hated it. She hated it. And now she's looking to leave the profession altogether. And it's just, it's just so hard to live off a teacher salary, especially if you only have one income. And what, yeah, I'm in my fifth year teaching. What I make for my salary, it would take a teacher in North Carolina, I believe, 25 years to make, which is ridiculous. People say, well, cost of cheaper, cost of cheaper. I'm like, no, that, it doesn't matter. I actually, sadly, y'all know, I actually moved. I live in the D.C. area now. So my cost of living actually went down when I lived in Jersey. Jersey was too damn high. Um, and even though the cost of living is slightly cheap, is cheaper here, is the cost of living in North Carolina and the southern states are going up. Rental prices going are going up everywhere. Like it makes no sense to take a one bedroom apartment in maybe Raleigh's a thousand dollars, which was unheard of before. So cost of living doesn't matter when the starting salary for teaching in North Carolina, I believe, is forty five thousand. And I just looked up, it says the average salary for a teacher in Florida, 17.28 per hour or 32,000 per year. Yeah, that's, um goes to the uh, housing thing that you was doing earlier today as your first story. You know, private equity owning everything. People move and they take, they take expensiveness with them to the South. Right. You know, like... Right. So New York and California is making, you know, New York, we lost, we're number one in losing the most amount of people. They lost over yep. like, they this year. We went from 28, we went from 20.8 million people to 19 and a half in a matter of three years, like since, since the pandemic, since 2020. You know, because it's so expensive up here. I mean, you probably read the news and see, you know, where where people are just like leaving because you know, like they're making everything. Well, things have always been expensive. Well, the average teacher salary in California is sixty-six k, which sounds like a lot compared to Florida. But then, if you look at the average rent, it's around like twenty-five to twenty-eight hundred. 
And I'll mm-hmm. tell you guys, like, I'm sorry, I lived in some of these states and there is no reason why a one bedroom apartment in Raleigh, North Carolina should be a thousand dollars. That's absolutely ridiculous. But those cities like Raleigh, also Nashville, Tennessee is becoming more expensive because a lot of people have moved to those cities. So as people come in, the costs increase there too as well. Anything else, Eric? Because I do want to make sure I bring in other uh, callers. Oh, um, uh, no, nothing else. Um, I guess I just wanted to vent a little bit, but... I hear you. Hang in there, buddy. Hang in there. I know it's tough and it, it really sucks. Let's go ahead and bring in, um, I'll go to Noel and then I'll bring in Linda. Good evening, everybody. Hello. I am still Hello. getting over the trauma. Oh, trauma. Do you know I could not get in the room? What happened? It just kept saying there was a problem entering the room. I had to log out and essentially create another profile. I was like, what's this? That's probably the app being ridiculous again. But I I found my way in. But I was just like, you know, what is this? But in any event, moving right along. I am, you know, this whole Nikki Haley thing. I find just utterly ridiculous, but what it demonstrates in real time is the fact that these people know that their base is out there somewhere on a fringe. They know the truth, but they dare not speak it. And that tells me we're really in a bad place where when you look at the dance they're doing on the Republican side, it's as if their base is some type of rabbit beast and they know it, but rather than try and tame it or bring it into the 21st century, they're dependent upon them being unmoored as they are because they know that creates a type of fear and it it feeds the polarization. And as long as they're that far from, you know, dealing with the truth, they know that there isn't a rash chance in hell that they will find their way into coalition with other people based on class or anything else. And they understand. And when I say they, I'm talking about the um, Republican leadership and the people on the far right wings and the evangelical ministers and stuff. They know that they're misleading these people but they do it to their advantage. And it's the similar dynamic on the Democrat side. These people know they are not going to um, respond to the interests of the constituents in terms of health care and, you know, education and all these things. It is a game that they play at the top to keep the masses polarized, but to see it in real time and to see her grin when the question was posed because she knew it could be a pitfall. I just thought that whole thing was, you know, remarkable in its own way. And then she comes back and and responds, well, of course it was slavery, but neither she nor the people on the Democrat side are willing to say, and for that miscarriage of justice, that crime against humanity, the response should be, the remedy should be, 
Nobody ever deals with that on either side. And so for Joe Biden to come out and say, oh, it was slavery. Yeah, you can say that piece, but you don't get the other piece and you're not going to. So you're just as bad. And it's, you know, I just feel like this nation is really crumbling. And this whole thing with the corporate um, community buying up all the property is just another form of control. And if you, you know, the whole gig with capitalism is ownership. This country started with a outright embrace of those who own land. And when they were, you know, setting up the documents like the um, Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were specifically talk about talking about white land owning men. And that is we're going full circle. And that's where we're headed back to. It's just an outright frenzy. And, you know, when you think about it, if they are successful in owning most of the housing stock for individual um, purchasers and stuff, you really do come back to the conditions of serfdom where everything is going to be rentals and which means they're going to have you on a short leash. And they can increase the rent set at random, just like they do the interest rates to, you know, it's just, I just see this whole thing spinning out of control. And as it spins out of control and capitalism continues to become predatory, we see that the people at the top are vying for control of every aspect of our lives. You know, there is no civil rights, no civil liberties. They're getting rid of all those. They're surveilling you. And it really does, you know, flip you back to that surf thing. And eventually it will, you know, take us to those more plantation-like strategies where you're just going to be a cog in a wheel. And like they said, you own nothing and you'll be happy. These controllers intend to keep us right where we are. That piece they're clear about. They will be in the firmament above and they're going to keep us pinned to the bottom. And what we'll see at the very bottom is we have to make room for the others who are being pushed out of the illusion of being of their whiteness, meaning something. And they're going to be beside us and it's just going to be volatility because that's just not anywhere where they plan to be. But I see the whole thing as a tragedy. And that discourse between Chink Uger and Roland was just, you know, it was just a waste of time because both of them understand what the real underpinnings are. Both of them understand that the dynamics of the Democratic Party is not about the candidates. It's not about the policies. The big problem is that the party apparatus will not let anything through, even if you had a firebrand or a truth teller or, you know, the closest we came in recent years was Bernie Sanders, but they shut that down at the superdelegates and nobody has had the courage to take that on. So I found that whole discussion just to be bad faith because they're talking around as if there's a chance that somebody can get through when they won't even host debates. So again, I say we're looking at a potential Biden on the Democrat side and either Trump or Nikki Haley. And I mean, the whole lineup on the Republican side is just as bad. So this is the establishment ensuring 
that you get no real choice. And in, with respect to foreign policy, we know that no matter who ends up on either side, it is going to be a continuation of this militarism in pursuit of consumerism and capitalism. And that's just such a no-go at this point, I think, in world history. And so I just don't see where, you know, things are going to be able to make a turn, you know, for anything better. Because when you look at the mechanics of it, it's just all, almost all baked in. That's mm. all I wanted to say for now. Well said, Noel. Um, let's bring in Linda. Yeah, I definitely felt what she was saying, Noel. So, yeah, I definitely agree with quite a bit of it. Um, hey, Sabby, how are you? Hello, how are you? I am good. I am good. Um, so I wanted to just really quickly, I think, to what um, the whole education debate you guys were kind of talking about a little bit earlier. Um, yeah, I definitely feel for teachers. Uh, my mother, actually, she's been a teacher for over 30 years, and um, but she's a high school teacher for um, special education uh, math. Well, she teaches special education math uh, specifically, but and she teaches in Camden to Camden, New Jersey. Um, but just from her experiences and just what she's shared with me, as well as also, um, yeah, just my understanding of what's going on in the teaching profession. Um, they're definitely- Linda, I'm sorry, did you say your mother taught in Camden in high school? She she is. She my mother, she's been teaching in Camden for like the past twenty-seven years, I think. Yeah. Is she okay? Is she <laughs> I mean, I've been to the school board meetings in Camden, like mm -hmm. is it sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, nah, no, nah, you're good. You're good. <laughs> uh you know what? My mom actually I will oh, my mom, she's tough. I mean, she's from Nigeria, like so there really isn't anything that I think any of these kids, I mean, she's never actually had any significant issues, I will say. So she's fine. I mean, she's tenured. I mean, I think, well, before, I think they got rid of tenure though in the state of New Jersey, you know, under Christie, his fat ass, but like, yeah. So, but she, I mean, she's going to eventually, I think, retire either at the end of this year or possibly maybe after um, the following school year. But yeah, I mean, I really do feel for teachers because I think what's going on is that, definitely they're not being compensated for all the stuff they're having to deal with. And my mom has talked a lot about how, you know, they're being expected to do, to do a lot more, like with having to manage, you know, these kids who it just seems like as years have went by that they're just, you know, they are really not able to just to kind of sit down and focus on what they're supposed to be learning. And I do think a lot of that has to do with technology. Um, people don't want to talk about this, but I think there's a huge issue with the fact that kids as of like this current, I guess, what is it like alpha, I guess, gen alpha, like whatever the, this current gen, or is it gen, yeah, gen alpha, gen Z, whatever, whoever, whatever, I think it's alpha that's currently, I think, in high school, or maybe it's gen Z. But I think the problem is that when you're lacking the ability to utilize critical thinking skills, um, because you have so much access to technology, where it's just everything is automatic somewhat, like you don't have to really kind of just process something and then you know, do what you need to do. Like, I think having too much access to some of these things really has allowed these kids to really not have to form the skills they need in order to really be, I think, to become successful or to be able to, you know, to kind of just sit down in the classroom, listen to what a teacher is instructing them on what to do, and then to actually do it. 
which I don't know if you guys are aware of, which I'm sure you've seen the, the viral videos of like, you know, kids fighting teachers, like, you know, in the classroom. And so all sorts of really crazy things like that, you know, in addition to, you know, kids just kind of talking out, outside their mouths anyhow to their teachers. And I'm just like, well, I'm, I'm, you know, a millennial and I've, it's interesting because it's really not, I'm not that far removed. I mean, I think I graduated high school 21 years ago, but just seeing what is happening, like, in these schools, it's, I think it's a bit alarming. Um, and I think it really speaks to how our country does not value educating, you know, our youth. I, that is very clear. I mean, with what, with what is currently happening and also, um, just with what we're seeing in terms of even like, you know, teachers who are retiring, you know, because of the fact they're not being paid well. And also, I think in California, um, I think it was, I think Eric or maybe it was John, the one of you guys was kind of saying something, but or maybe it was be easy. But the issue I think is also that it's just because it's so expensive to live in some of these areas, these teachers, they just can't afford it with their salaries. They cannot afford to actually like live in some of these areas that the cost of housing is so high. And I've read articles about this specifically, like as it pertains to California, that's a huge issue, unfortunately. And, um, you know, the government isn't really doing much to kind of address some of these things, um, which, it just makes you wonder, like, what's going on here. So, yeah. Um, even if you go to a place that the cost of living, quote unquote, is lower, the teachers still mm -hmm. pay less. It doesn't matter where you go; the teachers still don't get paid a living wage. Yeah. Is is it, it's beyond sad. Yeah. And um, and thank you for giving me a little bit of background about your mother because. I know when I started my teaching career, I actually started in New York City. I could have started in Camden, New Jersey, but my nieces and nephews went to a, a school in Camden. And I was like, the hell I would do that in that school. I mean, that city, because Camden is, Camden is, in case people don't know, Camden is one of the most impoverished cities mm -hmm. in America. It's actually, yeah. it was voted as the worst city in America. And it's not getting better. Like, you know how most cities have their affluent side of the town and then there's a the poverty side. There's no affluent side of, of Newark. Maybe, I mean, Camden, except for maybe the waterfront, which is like a really, really small part. Other than that, it is bad all around. It's Camden is is no joke. So hats off to your mother for sticking it out. I don't, I don't know if she's at Camden High, the Castle on the Hill, which they need to school anyway, but that's one of the issues. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, like I said, I know Camden. My nieces and nephews go to school in Camden. And what, what school do your nieces and nephews go to? They went to um, Molina. Okay. So, I actually, for my freshman year in high school, I went to medical arts high school in Camden. And it, it, it was different. I will say that um, it was really the first time I was exposed to because I came from like the suburbs of Jersey, like in a Catholic school and then went to that school. But I was only there for a year. Um, but it was just interesting because you I think what I kind of felt like I learned from it was that you do unfortunately see that even when you you know, I think the idea is that, OK, this school was meant to give kids an opportunity to be able to thrive right you know it, because that school was intended for folks who if you want to be a doctor if you want to kind of get into the career of medicine this is a school that's supposed to pre prepare you for that but you know i think unfortunately what was kind of going on was that you know there was a whole scandal that took place there with like test scores um years later where what they were doing was that they were basically i guess um 
you know, kind of giving, um, I guess, like getting access to like various uh, tests, like kind of statewide tests, and then basically kind of then like, you know, providing that to the students to like, wait, take in order to pass. Yeah. Wasn't there a movie about that? I thought I saw a movie about that. Um, no, I don't think there, no, there wasn't a movie about that, but I mean, but this is the kind of stuff that because of the whole no child left behind act or whatever, like this is the kind of stuff that unfortunately you have a lot of impoverished like school districts like Camden, what they've struggled with. Like my mother, like she's shared with me how Camden for, I don't think, I don't know if they currently are, but they, they were under the control of the state actually. They weren't even operating really independently because of the issues with their test scores. But the problem is that it's always been about poverty. Like people don't want to talk about that, but when you don't really have like a tax base, because Camden back in like the forties and fifties was actually very wealthy. Like when they had the whole Campbell soup, soup factory, like they had that actually there in Camden. So Camden, I remember, the guy who taught me how to drive, this white guy who I took like my driving classes from, he actually was born and raised in Camden. Like, and he, I remember having a conversation with him back in the, I think it was the late nineties or, or 2000. We were talking and he was just, I, I was asking him, Oh, so what your experience is like, you know, growing up in Camden? And he was just like, you know, yeah, it was very different at that time. It was predominantly white. And he kind of talked about how, you know, definitely because of like, you know, you had, it was right across from, you know, Philadelphia, so close access. And then you also had like the Campbell Soup Factory and other, you know, various like industries that were there. So it actually was a pretty wealthy city. Like the problem is that unfortunately, I think once the 60, you know, once a lot of the manufacturing left, especially with like, you know, the Campbell Soup Factory and then also the demographics started to change. Then, like, I think my father, actually, when he came to this country, he initially lived in Camden, I think, in the late 70s, I think up until maybe 1981. And my dad even told me, like, Camden actually was a nice place. The problem is that once drugs came in, that's when you started seeing, unfortunately, it just went to hell. Like, and it that's just has never. Thing that, that's the same thing that happened to Baltimore. My dad said the same thing about Baltimore. There used to be factories there. Um there, everybody had jobs, and then mm -hmm. drugs were actually purposefully brought into Baltimore, brought into Black inner cities, mm -hmm. um, in an effort to destroy the Black community. Yeah, yeah. No, I believe it. I mean, I think this happened in so many cities, unfortunately, but, like throughout this. And when you that. think about it, these things are all connected because when you look at the history of this nation, when they were building out the middle class in the post World War II era the educational systems in these, what are now the major metro urban centers was fine. You had the blacks doing the great migration from the South to the North looking for different opportunity. And to the extent that they were able to get into some of those public school systems before they shifted to a majority black demographic, they were getting educated well too. It was the same here in Cleveland. You know, you had the industrial base, Many of your large organizations were anchored in the inner cities because that was the business hub. But as soon as the migration patterns resulted in the um, 60s, where you had blacks really starting to surface as a political force in these major metro urban centers, you had the white flight with the white people moving to the suburbs and behind them went the corporations, which created a tax vacuum in the inner cities and so 
if you tie educational funding to property taxes, mm -hmm. if the big corporations go, that's your tax base. And then you just have the menial jobs that's left. And so suburban schools, even suburban public schools do well because they had a big corporations out there and the people who run the big corporations out there in the inner cities all over this country began to struggle. And then you have these unfunded mandates about what they had to deliver educationally, but the student-teacher ratio was bad, the pay was bad, and all of these things. And so it's it's been a, a continuous type of um, stream. These are not disconnected events. They're very much connected. And then when corporate America snatched the uh, manufacturing base from under all America, then you see the plight just everywhere. And the only places you see where they're not having real problems with education with in terms of curriculum and other things are the elite districts where they got those high incomes and high contributions, you know, from parents. Now they have to worry about their kids shooting up everybody. But in terms of the provision of education, they're doing it. But this country is not focused on that because capitalists just looking for cheap labor. And so when they moved the bases to Mexico and the Philippines and China, they didn't care whether you could learn to read or not. As a matter of fact, they prefer you not read so you can be more given to whatever they put across the media and your consent is more readily manufactured. So it's just, you know, that's why I say this, the whole picture, it fits together in a puzzle when you take the time to connect the dots and all of these things are interconnected. One thing yeah. um, that that um, you're slightly incorrect about everything else is right when it comes to the suburbs and the um, after like the I would say the suburbs I wouldn't say necessarily like the affluent but necessarily the suburbs they're also having a problem with finding educators because in the education community if you want to make a decent living wage you have to teach in what's called the high needs area so yeah. the place where they don't have students so like the suburbs because they don't pay as well, if you don't have, if you don't come from a family that has wealth, or if you don't live in a, if you don't live in a neighborhood and you're a two-person household income, if you're a one-person household income, you cannot be a teacher at a public school in the suburbs because they don't pay that well. That's that's pretty much known in the education community. So even so, that problem that they're starting to have is trying to find qualified teachers because, for one, they can't, they don't pay. Number two, the students. They don't, like you said, they do shoot the schools. Also, some of the students are starting to fight back too. They're starting to have the same problem, same problems that we see on TikTok and YouTube of um, students fight, fighting back. You just don't see it as much for, for their community. They have it too. Um, you also have the issue with um, school boards. Um, you got, you know, the parents coming in talking about CTE, CTE. And it's like, this has nothing to do with our education that we don't even teach CTE. So you got those. Um, you also got that issue as well. So, and also Linda to, um, to, um, give a little bit of background, my stepmother, my nieces and nephews, that's actually my, 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 my stepmother's, um, grandkids. Mm -hmm. My stepmother was born and raised in Camden. Okay. She was hooked on drugs. So she got into, um, drugs and I was in the um, hospital one time with my niece and this woman said something to me that was, and it was in Camden. She said something to me that I never thought about. She said the kids that there are in the schools today, 
their parents are a result of them not getting parented because their parents were on drugs were doing the crack ap- epidemic. So what does that look like when you have kids, well, you have parents who are raising kids who themselves never really had parents, never quote unquote had a stable household. My stepmother was in and out of jail. So my my brother and sister, they never really had a mother set in the household. And then they went off and had kids and my brother, bless his heart, you know, he started doing his own thing, but he's trying to be a good father now. So with them, with that also playing into effect of the crack epidemic that happened in, in Newark, I mean, sorry, in, sorry, I said these Newark, let's keep on saying them interchangeably, but in Camden, it's like that also plays into, and like Ms. Noel said, this all culminates, all comes together when it comes to government and policy and all that. And yes, absolutely. This is how all yeah, I'm um, savvy. Were you gonna? Yeah, were you trying to say something? Oh, I was just gonna say. Um, shoot. Hello. I forgot. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was. Yeah, I definitely agree with you guys. Um, everything is definitely interconnected, and I really think that um, I don't see it getting better, honestly, because our because technically government would really have to step in in a way, whether it's at the local level the federal level, something to ensure that, like, I know, I've, I know with these previous call-ins, I've heard you guys kind of talk, I actually you savvy specifically, I've heard you really kind of talk about how, you know, the way that uh, education should be funded should be based on like, you know, the folks who are having to pay taxes in these areas, but if you, it should be more so where, you know, government is actually having to fund like the, these schools. I, which I really believe because we are seeing such severe, just class, inequality that's happening in this country, they don't give a shit. I, I think that's so obvious. Like they do not care about, the elite only cares about the elite. Um, that's very clear, which is why they're cool with sending their kids to these private schools, even out in the Bay. Like they're cool with their, like in Palo Alto specifically in the Bay, those kids are killing themselves at high rates. There have been suicide clusters in the Palo Alto school districts, and that is a very elite, very wealthy school district. But because of the pressure of when you talk about this idea of, oh, everyone's expected to go to like Stanford or like these really elite universities. And if these kids feel like they're not hacking it, then they're often themselves or they're, you know, they're they're that depressed for whatever reason. And it's just you. So it just kind of speaks to the fact that um, the way our society is going, I don't think that unless if something drastic happens that it's going to improve because it's very clear that they don't care what happens to the rest of 99%. They just care about what happens to themselves. And to your point, Linda, if you track the history after the Brown versus the Board of Education, if you track the public school education, especially in the Southeast, public school enrollment went way down and what you saw was a proliferation of the private and parochial schools. They were taking their kids out and sending them to private school. And then in recent decades, you had the federal government coming in and making it possible to use public tax dollars for private school education. Mm -hmm. That's the way to supplement and make sure you know, their kids get the education that they wanted. And that's how you create these big urban centers again with majority of minority populations that they absolutely don't care about. The state of Ohio has said using um, 
you know, property taxes as a means of funding public education was unconstitutional. And they directed the state legislature to fix that formula and they never fixed it. And it's just, you know, so the, the ruling there was from the state Supreme Court, but they never did anything because those, you know, suburban families where they had high tax basis for the community, they were not interested. And then we had another more sublime problem in the big cities because I remember in the earlier years in the city of Cleveland, because so much of the corporate tax base had left, they were trying to lure people back in. So you get into these situations where the cities and counties were doing this tax abatement thing. So if you're going to try and do tax abatements to lure corporate entities in, that cuts from the tax potential tax base that your school system depends on. And you never really heard of those type of agreements in the outlying areas like in Beechwood that had elite communities and stuff. They they didn't have to offer big tax bases because that's exactly where a lot of those entities wanted to be. And then you get the situation where the inner cities become the playground for the suburbanites. And so you see us passing, you know, levies to build this stadium, repair this stadium. And the most of the people in the inner city can't go to those professional games anyway, but the suburban people can drive in, come and have a la-la, trash the place, and then go back to their suburb. And, you know, to your point, Jonathan, you made a very, a very good point that had gotten by me. When my uncles and aunts first got to Cleveland from Montgomery, Alabama, you know, they went to Alabama State, which at the time was a teacher's college. And so they would come to these big urban centers and get those jobs as teachers because, as you suggest, they pay well. But there was a dynamic that I distinctly remember us talking about because they wanted to live in the suburbs because they wanted their kids in those suburban schools, but they would drive a mile to 10 buck two to get that good paying job in the city. And so you had a dynamic where you had people living in the suburbs and sending their kids to private and parochial and up schools otherwise, but then they would drive into the inner city and deal with those kids. And the question is, if it's good enough for you to teach, why won't you put your kids in those schools and make sure that those schools are doing what they're supposed to do? But that was a distinctive pattern where you had the parents of students living in the suburbs, but teaching in the big inner city schools because they had that big, um, much better salary. It's just a, a really crazy kind of thing, but it follows this whole grift that capitalism is making sure the majority of the resources that are produced are always allocated to the top. And then the people at the bottom just have to, you know, kind of figure it out and do whatever you can. One thing I was going to add to uh, to something that Noel just said about who's in the city and who comes into the city, because I think this is something like if you're a tourist and you go to these cities as a tourist, you may not realize this at that point in time. But like, for example, let's say you come to Boston as a tourist and while you're here, you decide to go to a Red Sox game or you go to a Celtics game. But usually it's the Red Sox game that tourists like to go to. Right. I think a lot of times people um, people assume or tourists assume that the people that is in the ballpark with them are people that live in the city. And to Noel's point, 
a lot of the people that you see at those Red Sox games, at the Celtics games, definitely at the Bruins games, those people live in the suburbs. They, they come into the city for the game. And so if you're not, if you don't live here, like you can easily like be misled and assuming that this is Boston. Like these are the people that are Boston. A lot of the people that live in the city, I'll say the working class people that live in the city. A lot of the working class people that live in the city can't afford to go to those games. They're not going to Red Sox games. They're not going, they may, may be able to go maybe to one game once a year, every now and then. But most of the most of the part, like if you talk to working class people in the city, they can't afford to go to a Red Sox game. They'll just watch that game at home or they'll watch the Celtics play at home for free. It's actually like that in, in a lot of cities, to be honest with you, like the people that you see a lot of times at those sporting events are usually not people that live in the inner city. They're usually suburbanites that drive in to go to those games. I'll say the same thing about the concerts. A lot of times, like if you go to a concert at TD Garden, a lot of times those are the people that live in the suburbs and a lot of the teenagers that will come out from the suburbs and stuff like that to go to those games. Or because we have a lot of colleges here in Boston, or the people at those events are college students. If you're here during when school is in session. I mean, if you're here during the summer, Obviously, those are not the college students, but if you're here during, during the school year, a lot of times the people that you'll see at those games and those concerts are college students. They're not locals. So oftentimes people will make the assumption that that is Boston, that that is the Boston crowd and the people and stuff like that. And this is one of the things that kind of pisses me off is because particularly here, Boston gets that reputation for being the most racist city. And people say the Boston sports fans are really racist and they yell racist like epithets or whatever, like at these games. But again, as I was just explaining to you, a lot of times those people who are at those events are not people that live in the city. A lot of times those are people that are in the burbs. So you got to keep that in mind. And it's just it. And you're right. Know well when you say that they come in and they trash the city because like my husband and I we've seen this before too, you know like now we went to those things like we went to like games and stuff not all the time, but when we could go we would. But you're right they they would come into the city particularly like the teenagers like they come into the city they'd throw beer bottles and shit on the ground and all that kind of stuff and just trash things and stuff like that. A lot of the the coverage that people saw after the Red Sox won against the Yankees back in that big 04 game where people were like, oh, they're flipping cars and stuff like that. Again, a lot of that was college students and suburbanites. They were the ones trashing the city. They were the ones flipping cars and throwing shit all over the place. So good point there, uh, Noel. Uh, be easy. I think you were trying to I just want to chime in real quick about what you were saying. Uh, those, some of them were kids and some of them were, were adults, but yeah, they were just like drunkards in there flipping over cars. They were vandalizing it, right? A, a bunch of people that were bringing up like BLM and the riots, they were rioting because their team won. 
So um, people were getting, some people got trampled. So it it was a lot of injuries. And I also want to make the point too, because I also produce music as well. And, you know, most of the rap music and rap concerts are done, you know, by black artists. But when you go to the shows, you'll be kind of hard pressed to find black people there. It's not because they don't love the music. It's just when you see the ticket prices, people are like, uh, yeah, I'll just stay at home. They would love to attend, but they simply can't afford it. So um, I just want to add. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, just kind of to what you're speaking to, uh, be easy and also what you're speaking to, Savvy, as well. Like, I think what we said earlier, like how everything just ties in. So just this idea that, because um, this isn't the way things used to be, like in terms of just, you know, with these... Uh, concerts and like you know um, sports arenas and stuff no there was at some point where you could afford to like go to these games the folks who lived in these cities could actually go to these games and afford it but with you know uh just these you know corporations once they're like you know investing into some of these you know these teams or whoever the owners are and then like you know when they're trying to fund for stadiums and things like that everything just becomes about money and so then it's just unfortunately where okay ticket prices then go up and then you know, the folks who are really the ones living in these areas then may not be able to afford um, to then go to those shows in order to actually root for their teams. So. One, yeah, because they said they said like back in the day, if you talk to older people um, who grew up in Boston, the child behind. They when said, so you know, I I graduated from high school 22 years ago, so I'm in the same bracket as you are. Um, when we were in high school, and correct from if I'm wrong, if you were in the same, if you felt the same way. College to us was an option. So you could go to college, you could go to the military, you could go to trade school, you could do, you could just go straight to the workforce. It was pretty much acceptable. Like if you wanted to do that, okay, cool, do you, whatever. Then after No Child Left Behind, there was a shift where now it was like you had to go to college. Everyone had to go to college. One reason why I stopped teaching high school was I got sick and tired telling kids like, go to college, go to college, go to college. And I knew that, and we know that Statistically, kids, I think, Sabi, help me out here, but what's the statistics of students graduating from a four-year college? Isn't it like 20-some percent? I think, 30%? I, I think so. Yeah, the... the oh, Sabi, can you hear me? Re- huh? Can you guys hear me? I, I can. You can hear me, Noel? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, maybe it's just you, Jonathan. Um, I was just going to say that um, a lot of times when people look at those numbers, they're looking at, okay, how many students are actually attending college or enrolled? But that's not actually what's important. What's important is the retention rate. How many of those students actually finish? How many of them actually graduate? And that's the number that you really want to look at. And that's the number we need to really concern ourselves about, like in the U.S., because the reality is a lot of these students are not they're not graduating. They're going there. They are they party too hard freshman year or they have to leave because of financial concerns. That's another big one. Sometimes people can't finish college because something happens in their family and financially they can no longer afford to attend. And one of the things I would like to add to what Jonathan was saying is. You know, he articulated in his era 
Um, there was the opportunity to finish college. I mean, finish high school, go into the workforce, go to college, blah, blah, blah. But for my generation, and I was born in 63, coming out of the Southeast, where remember, we didn't have the big industrial base. College was highly recommended. They were pushing us to go to college, period, because that was the only way they saw for us to um make a better life for ourselves. And that's why I said Alabama State was the state teachers college. And a lot of the graduates from Alabama State and the Southeast in general would move to these big metro urban centers in Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit. And they began to become the teachers in those areas. Um, but the thing is, for me, when I was coming out, it was like we were, you know, encouraged to do as well as we can and get to college because Otherwise, there was no factory for you to go to. And when I got to Cleveland, I met a lot of people who came out of high school and start working at the, the telephone company. Um, at that time, BP was here, the city, they had programs. And so they had started careers right out of high school and were able to retire or get to retirement eligibility early. And that was an interesting dynamic to me because coming out of the Southeast, it was like, go to college, go to college, go to college. But now, you know, there is no, you know, incentive really because the kids don't see the pipeline. They don't see where education is valuable in that sense. And you have the extreme careers like computer science, engineering, you know, doctoring, lawyering, where they understand from the get-go that they're going to need additional training beyond college. And so those who are going into those career paths have more of a credible um, curriculum and a, cred a credible track to follow. But in the arts and sciences, you know, that's just too risky because the social worker can, you know, take the job of the, you know, BS degree psychologist and this and that. So you really, in those arts and sciences, you have to be prepared to go to masters and doctors and this and that. And, you know, but, you know, there is a value to me. I value education it's pure purpose because it can help you reason your way out of things. But in these days and ages, when, you know, they're using AI and automation to replace people by the boatload. And it's just, I just, I don't see. I just want to um, pivot back to the, uh, to, to what you were saying, Linda, and then Noel, and then um, what you said again, Noel. So what you were saying before about uh, the government has to do this and that, that is true, but they're not going to do it on, on their own. You know what I mean? Like, that's why, if, like I said, I always say, if you live in a ballot initiative state, you're going to have to do it and to make them do it, to, to you know, to, to pass laws. I mean, to pass, matter of fact, pass amendments later for laws um, because they're just not going to do it. You, you know what I'm saying? The, the change begin at home. Now, also, regarding the taxes is concerned, this is the reason why it's so important to charter a, a public bank, because it allows you to, uh, I mean, its main purpose is to finance infrastructure, but the side effect of it, or the positive side effect of it, is it helps to build a surplus without having to go into debt and without having to create new taxes or raise existing taxes. Also, 
Sabrina, did you see the thing? Uh, I don't know if you read it yet or whatever, but the thing that I had sent you about the um, about how men, uh, young men, are not going to college, but um, young women uh, are because a lot of the a lot of the young men are seeing they, they're not seeing the value in it of getting they not they're not seeing that it's worth it, you know, getting into debt, and you know, like get you know, like you get a job and you come out and you're not going to be able to pay your debt. Um, the women are still going, but, um, you know, it's a lot of, I, like my thing was, you know, like I always said, Hey, you know, like if you're going to go to college, just go study abroad for free. But apparently the, 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 the guys, they're just not going to go college period. So they're pretty much, and, and you know what, in this article, it talked about how, um, they, a lot of jobs are beginning to take down the requirements because they're seeing that, you know, it's kind of like they, they're they using the, their leverage and they're saying, damn, no one's going to college. I guess we're going to have to say you don't need all these degrees in order to get the job. So not to say that that was something that was planned from, from the jump, but it's like, you know, like the people are coming together and using their leverage, using their power to make to make them bend you know, to make the, the, the boss class bend, you know, but it, it was in that article that I sent you, Sabrina, but yeah, that's, that's what I'm beginning to see happen. With, yeah. You know, I was going to cover that tomorrow, actually. All right. I didn't say anything. <laughs> so I don't want to like necessarily shift off of the um, education thing, but I did want to kind of say something about, um, I guess like Nikki Haley and, um, the whole like Confederate flag like thing. So one of the things I, so I was just kind of thinking quite a bit, just, you know, like when you were discussing that segment on your show. And so I really do think the reason why I guess uh, there are people, which I guess I had a couple of thoughts on that. When have you guys ever seen, um, you know, a country where they had a civil war, and uh, you had a part of that country that tried to secede from, from you know, the actual country that ended up winning. And yet after everything was said and done, the winning side, um, you know, which has their own actual flag. But yet we are still in this country still somehow expected to be OK with seeing the flag of the losing side. That doesn't really make any sense. But it just kind of makes me think more about the symbol, the symbolism of the Confederate flag more so than anything. Cause it's, I mean, big it, people can claim oh, it's about the history. It's our history. It's our history. But, and, but regardless of whatever your history is, I guess, in terms of you have people who from your family fought in that, it's really, I think about the symbolism of what it holds because it, from my perspective, I'm just thinking about it historically. I think it really just evokes the fact that, you know, the South was really trying to hold on to its economic base of free labor by trying to ensure that slavery existed, which is why to an extent that whole war was fought in the first place. And so I feel like that's the real reason why, um, you know, it's really to kind of, as a reminder of, I would say more just like a white supremacist reminder of somehow we're better than like we are we are better than you so even though we lost quote unquote that's why you know reconstruction failed after all of that because they were more willing to make sure that these fools who tried to secede from the union um were able to somehow still be made whole and given money but they refused to give you know um the slaves the former slaves their 40 acres and a mule so i, I think it's always just been about this idea of like upholding white supremacy more than anything 
Yeah, it has been. And and I was just going to say really quick, you know, I lived in the South. I lived in North Carolina, South Carolina, and I lived in Georgia. I lived in Virginia. And some people will say that flag is a part of their family history because they had uh, family members that actually fought during that war or whatever. But most of the rhetoric that I heard from people supporting that flag was 100% racist. And like I said, racism in the South compared to the Northeast, it's more overt, it's more in your face. And one of the things that I would say is that, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I had discussions with people about this down South. I remember my freshman year of college, me and my roommate went to a party and my roommate was from New Jersey. And you know how it is, you go to a a party and you're meeting people in college. So it's like, everybody asks the same questions. What's your name? Where are you from? What's your major? What do you do? Like that kind of thing. And she told this guy, I'll never forget that she told this guy that she was from New Jersey. And he told her, and she's white, by the way, he told her the South should have won the war. (laughs) And that wasn't the first time, that wasn't the first time I heard that. That wasn't the last time. I heard that down there. So it's like, what was interesting is that those same people would tell black people to get over slavery, but they hadn't gotten over losing the civil war. And you're right. It was another like tool of white supremacy. And there were several protests when I lived in Columbia, South Carolina to take down the Confederate flag at the state house. By the way, it's not like it was just Confederate flag just flying along the street somewhere. It was in front of the state house. You could not miss it. And so it turned a lot of people off. Like there were businesses that refused to come to, like I talked about tonight, refused to open a location in Columbia because of the flag at the state house. Because when you have it at the state house, that is a very controversial statement. Like, what are you trying to say about the state? So the thing is, like it eventually got to the point where they agreed to take it down but it just it, it it there was so much like if you could go look up on YouTube and see the videos of the protests where people were fighting. There were neo-Nazis there. There were Klan members there. And that was like a, just a regular thing in South Carolina. Like they used to have marches. And this is in, in, in the 2000s. They had marches for the Klan members. They had marches for neo-Nazis going through downtown Columbia, which is where the University of South Carolina is, by the way. So this was right near the college and they had marches like, like this was just, it was no big deal. It was just like a thing. And it, it, it's hurt a lot of things economically in Columbia. Like I absolutely loathe that place. Like when I tell you, I hate South Carolina, I hate South Carolina. Oh, I felt like, and it wasn't just because of that reason. I felt like economically South Carolina did not use the potential that it had. Um, It doesn't matter if you're in Columbia. It doesn't matter if you're in Charleston. Other people will tell you go to Charleston because it's more artsy and more free. No, Charleston is just as racist as Columbia. It's a racist state and it's, it's very, you know, pronounced and you'll see that like living there. And so And you have that in North Carolina too, but I felt like in South Carolina, it was worse. And so I think that again, like Nikki Haley, what I showed you guys tonight is that when it came to racial issues, she was known to flip-flop. She was known to even disregard her own racism that she experienced living in South Carolina in order to make political moves for her career. So Nikki Haley is not someone to be trusted 
when it talk when you talk about racial issues, because at the end of the day, when her bottom line is affected, she has always been known to turn and pivot towards white white supremacy because that's what helped further her career. Little known fact about Nikki that people may not be aware of. Remember, I told you guys tonight that her dad taught at a historically black college. Mm-hmm. She used to live in community with black people. Wait, wait, what? Really? Yes. Nikki's Nikki's parents then in turn later on, when they started making more money, they sent Nikki to a private school. So she went from being in a multicultural community to going to an all pretty much all white private school. And that was when she started to try to pivot to more towards what makes, you know, what works for for white people. And that's that's really who she speaks to. She's not speaking to black people. She's not speaking to Latino people. She's not even speaking to people who are Sikh like her. She, she has tried very hard to try to blend in with the white community. That That is just so sad. I only say that because, I mean, just even with her own cultural background, that of her parents, I mean, I can understand even that, again, I'm not her parents or whatever, but the fact that maybe whatever the reason was, for, oh, let's send her to this elite school, whatever, thinking maybe that's, because I think unfortunately when you're you're the child of immigrants, because, you know, your parents think that by putting you in certain schools, that's going to give you the best possible education. But at the same time, these are also places where you're dealing, you're, she, I'm sure she herself in those, pla- in those places even encountered more discrimination, actually, you know, as she was probably trying to like navigate her educational situation in those places. So find that to be very interesting um, that she kind of then talks the way she talks because at some point you still have to look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and be okay with yourself because but, it gives, she has a lot of internalized self-hatred in some way, maybe towards her own identity, which I'm not going to say that's the case. I don't know her, but just the fact that that article you pointed out, Sabby, about the state uh, senator or congressperson who was literally sitting here and just really talking down to her said a lot. You know, that said a lot about how her own Republican Party viewed her within that state. But here's the thing, you know, to pivot back to the point that you were making earlier, Linda, um, these this nation had its greatest opportunity for change during the Reconstruction era when the South and the Confederate had lost. But what I try and get people to understand is that that was just not about the institution of slavery. That was about an entire way of life, a culture that had, you know, arisen around it and built out of it. And what we saw the Southern Confederate really saying is our identity is so intricately woven into the institution of slavery that when you take it away from us, you obliterate the whole underpinning of our culture. That means, you know, not only did I own you, I own the shack you live in and the the land that you worked on. And that is a lot for people to give up. And, you know, not everybody in the South owned slaves, but the white people in the South who did not own slaves had the additional benefit of white skin and that fed into the culture as well. You could be poor as dirt, but you still were above a slave. And that's why I say we have a problem in this country because a lot of times the working class and poor white people are fighting as much for identity Mm 
as they're fighting for anything else. You know, they're driving around the Southeast and this and that with those rebel flags and this and that, and they ain't got a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of, but they glum into that identity because it gives them a space in American history. And if the North had held their ground during reconstruction and given the culture time to adjust and forced to break the South in terms of that understanding of who they were as Confederates, we would have been in a whole different position. You know, it wouldn't have made capitalism right, but if we had, our people had gotten the 40 acres and a mule, they would have had some type of foothold in ownership. They wouldn't have just had their villages and towns and stuff so easily destroyed without repercussion. But what we saw through that whole movement in American history is at the end of the day, the white northerners or moderates or whatever you want to call them, at the end of the day, their whiteness and their ties to the white southerns were stronger than any, you know, perspective of doing the right thing. And it's just a, a tragedy in that sense. But, you know, like we say, all these things that we see now are emerging from the realities, not from the rhetoric, but from the realities of our history. And if we don't deal with those historical facts in a real way, we continue to do what we do. And, you know, and it's amazing to me that, you know, we always say when people migrate or immigrate to this country, they're not nine times out of 10, if they're not coming from that southern border, they're not coming from the poorest echelons of their societies. A lot of these Africans and East Indians are coming, like um, Sabi said, their their parents are coming with educations and PhDs and this and that. So they're not coming from the bottom. They're really coming to seek better opportunities. And some of them have better education and skill sets than the people that they're leaving behind at home. The, the bottom feeders at home are still bottom feeding at home because they can't get to this country unless it's the ones, you know, coming from South and South Central America. But that said, it is amazing to me how people like, um, you know, Kamala Harris and Vivek Ramaswamy and Nimrata Haley, within a generation, they have understood the American project and found their way in. They have managed to negotiate and understand, yeah, I may have brown skin and people may perceive me as this, but I know I need to identify this way and I need to speak this lit this litany. I need to use this rhetoric. You would think if, you know, given Nimrata's background, then she would have understood the truth. History had no real linkage to it because it is not her history and just speak the truth. But yeah. she has learned if you're going to negotiate this project, you must do it from this position. And she's made definitive choices. And as well as Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, these people who lineage here goes one inch compared to our three feet deep. But they have picked up on it. And even with their brown skin, they're playing the they have been made white and they're playing that white narrative. Yeah, but that's what I that's what I said before about those who are white adjacent. See, people like Nikki, they can blend in. And mm -hmm. I, I said the same thing. And it, it's interesting. Uh, um, uh, Asian friend of mine said the same thing too. She told me this 
uh, when she was actually, I think she, when she was talking about her experience at BU, she actually told me this. she said, it's easier for those of us that are Asian because we can kind of blend in with white people. Although I'm sure white people would not look at them and see them, you know, as the same, but they have an easier time blending in. They have some of the same similar education background, right? They're more likely to live in some of the same neighborhoods. So it's a little bit different. Same thing with people like Nikki, same thing with people like Vivek. They're more likely to be in a line with the white community when it comes to uh, uh, economic issues, when it comes to uh, the housing issue, they're more likely to be on the same path with them. And yeah, don't get me wrong, they'll still experience racism and discrimination, but they blend in more. So those are the people that I was saying before that are white adjacent. They have an easier time blending in. Black people don't blend in. No, you are right, definitely about that. Well, and I say that because so, grow, I grew up in New Jersey. So growing up in Jersey, like the Asian people that I encountered in Jersey, I mean, were actually, I mean, really chill. Like I didn't experience any of that kind of like anti-blackness from Asians in Jersey. But when I went to California specifically and went to my doctor program out there, I was shocked by the amount of discrimination I experienced from, from like Southeast Asians, like from Indians specifically. It was very, very eye-opening actually. Um, because I think it really speaks to the fact that, you know, when you are of a certain, um, because even out there in California in the Bay Area, when I relocated out there, um, the black population was dwindling actually. Um, because, you know, they, you know, folks who maybe used to live in like certain parts, like, and maybe it was Sunnyvale or like East Palo Alto or whatever had kind of left those areas and had maybe moved either out of California completely or maybe had moved out towards um, like other kind of like parts of California that maybe were like a little further north or something like that. But yeah, gentrification. I see someone saying in the chat. chat yeah, pretty much. Um, so with all of that, you just saw like how with the tech industry out there, it brought in a lot of like these Asians on those like those uh, those visas or whatever, where they're being, you know, they're there to like work in these specific tech jobs. And so those were the ones and like, you know, some of these other Asians I encountered in certain like industries were just really ignorant, actually, in a way that it kind of shows you this idea, even though I've never really thought of this idea of this model minority, but how there are certain cultures that do try to embrace that, even though, again, that does not make you um, necessarily more acceptable to white people. It just means, yeah, they might be more willing to tolerate you because they might be with not being able or not wanting to cause trouble for them, but still, you're still an other, you know, when that time will come if they choose to other you in some way. But it was, so it was very interesting, those kind of cultural dynamics in that area. So. And let's be clear, a lot of those people from whiteness as a construct is universal. And you go to places like India and China, and there is still a premium on white skin. And so a part of what these people bring to this when they immigrate here has to do with the propaganda about who we are before they get here. But there is also they bring with them cultural dynamics about who's white skin. You know, they did a whole piece on um, PBS about the East Indian women who were bleaching their skin because they, you know, it was better in that society to be whiter. And I guess that comes from the, the time when they were a part of the British Empire. 
and whiteness was, you know, a premium because the, the, you know, oppressors were white. And so they bring that with them as well. And then, you know, for the, I just have to mention this right quick, for the um, black people from Africa who come by way of African elite classes or castes or Africans by way of Europe, when they get here, I'm telling you, those accents work for them because the Americans underst- American whites understand immediately that they are not indigenous to this country. And those accents create a type of exoticism and this and that. And when they come from the upper ca- caste of their own um, native lands, they relate to the upper caste here because they don't have the, the psychological baggage that we have through having been the underclass. So there are a number of dynamics that are filtering and playing out in those circles. I was going to add to, um, and I also want to make sure I go to, um, I just want to bring in more people. So okay. Linda, I'll invite you as a speaker okay. and then go to Maria. Also want to add to, especially the romance languages, because Americans eat that shit up. If you come here, if you immigrate to the United States, and you're from like Spain or Puerto Rico, uh, Italy, like if you speak one of the romance languages, Americans eat that shit up. All right, Linda, I'll invite you to speak and I'll bring in uh, Maria. Okay, Maria, you're on the mic. Just have to unmute. Yeah, I I heard a lot about education. and I thought it was a lot of it was critically relevant. Well, all of it. But I didn't really hear much about social emotional learning. Um, and I, I got a rude awakening uh, when my daughter was in fourth grade. Her teacher told me that she already had five girls in her class that were menstrual. And it it just shocked the shit out of me, thinking about how many teachers out there have to introduce, you know, young girls into their menstrual issues. And that woke me up to a lot of the values of my social-emotional learning when I was a child in grade school, how my third grade teacher used to tie me and my best friend together with a jump rope and make us go through our entire day. We could have untied it, but she taught us a lot going through our day together. In second grade, uh, my teacher wheeled in the television with tears in her eyes and we watched the Challenger explosion together, and there was nothing but hugs and loving and tears. And with so many teachers constantly challenged to teach to the test, having to buy their own supplies, even though it is a Title I school uh, where children are not allowed to pay for anything, But the budget is so lousy, it still puts all that pressure on the teachers to pay for their own supplies. It's just nuts. 
How in the world do they have time for that social emotional learning that kids need so desperately? I don't know. I don't know who I would be today. I I have no idea who I would be today without those exceptional teachers that you know actually had the time to attend to my social emotional learning in a classroom. I I cringed I cringed to think about it. And I live in Louisville, Kentucky. You're required to have a master's degree here. Like you were saying, Sabi, some places require it. And you can get certified to teach with a bachelor's degree, but you have to get that master's within five years after or you lose your certification. There's no tuition remission. You have to pay your own master's tuition. And a lot of the teachers have to work a second job. And given that most of the teachers are females and trying to start families, they don't make enough or, you know, they're working two jobs to get through graduate school uh, and don't have time to spend with their families and expected to teach. It's, it's, it's a really shitty situation all around. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. I mean, it's, it's true. Teachers have to do a lot. I mean, um, I mean, just some of the things that I remember, I remember classmates having to deal with things like divorce and not their self, but their parents, like, you know, announcing that they're getting divorced and, and all the kind of things that kids have to just deal with, or sometimes they may find out right before they go to school. Um, there was, um, I'll never forget this, geez. Uh, in when I was in high school, we lost once, there was one student that we lost to suicide. And this was many years ago. So you got to understand back then it was not as common. And it was like, a, it was crazy that that entire day, you know, like someone that a lot of us knew to hear that he committed suicide, especially during back then during that time, it was just, it was not something you heard of often. We didn't have social media when I was in high school. There was no Facebook, no YouTube no tickety talk, none of those things. So I still remember that morning arriving to school, walking to my locker and just seeing people crying in the hallway. And I was like, what is going on? And then people explained, you know, what happened. And I was just like, what? Like, it was just, I'll never forget that. It was very, it was more controversial, like during that time. So like, I remember that, um, and I remember like our teachers the entire day because we had four by four schedule. So we actually had a college, the college schedule when I was in high school. So we had four classes for like the fall and then four classes for four different classes for the spring. So I remember the whole day, like every teacher I had was just like 
trying to console the students because it was just very, at that time, it was very, because again, like I said, we didn't have social media. So this whole thing that I hear about students have to deal with cyberbullying, there was no cyberbullying because we didn't have social media. But that student was heavily bullied in person. And what was crazier about it was the fact that he used his parents' gun. So he knew where it was. And I just thought to myself, like, holy shit, you know? Like, at that point in time, like, just being so young. Again, I was a freshman. Us just being so young and just thinking we have our whole future ahead of us. Never thinking, like, something like that would happen. But it was, it was, it was crazy stuff. But I remember, like, our teachers, like, really had to console everybody for like the whole day like it was just that's all it was the entire day i remember my teachers i don't know if teachers can do this today but i remember there were the stomach bug was going around at one point and i remember i got sick in dance class and i had dance class at the end of the day and i just puked like everywhere and i remember my teacher my dance teacher who i'm still friends with facebook i'm friends with on facebook uh, my dance teacher, Miss Woodrow, drove me home because she didn't want me to get in a bus because they were afraid I was going to puke on the bus. And so my teacher drove me home to my house. Like back then, I guess, like it was just different. Like back then, like I had no concern about a teacher knowing where I lived or driving me home, like none of those things. And so I, I've seen teachers just go to tremendous like lengths like to do things for their students yeah i, I definitely agree with what you're saying on, on that savvy um i think just you know i think with our I, I really think the millennial generation maybe we were the last generation that truly maybe i don't want to say like kind of had teachers that went above and beyond but where because of maybe like the lack of i don't i don't know i don't know how to explain it but just where you know, teachers were, I think, very vital to the community. And that was still kind of where I think parents accepted and respected that, where you had teachers who, you know, would go out of the way to like drop off, like, you know, kids maybe back home. Um, I mean, I, I've gotten rides from some of my like teachers, you know, I've, I mean, I, I mean, even like, you know, coaches, various things like that when I used to run track back in the day. And so it just kind of seemed like maybe, um, you know, I, I think just with everything that's kind of been going on, um, maybe I think with the stressors that these teachers are kind of going through, especially, um, you know, maybe what their school districts are putting them through, unfortunately, it does kind of seem as if, you know, maybe they're, they're, they don't have the time even to do some of those things that they used to do, like where, okay, like you had that teacher who could maybe pay, you know, more attention to a child to kind of acknowledge what their gifts are so that way they could flourish more or someone who, like, I mean, I remember I used to do, like, I used to get tutored at one point by my geometry teacher. I think I tutored with her, I think, literally, like, every week for a couple of months, actually, just so I could, like, get the grade I wanted in geometry. But, I mean, with all of these requirements now that these teachers have to deal with, I think that would be really hard. I mean, for some of these teachers to be able to kind of set aside time to be able to make sure, hey, that they can, you know, offer what they can offer to students that's additional outside of the classroom on their free time, as well as also being able to then meet the requirements they have to meet. So. 
But you know, earlier, especially back in my day, teaching was more free form because, again, we had a student body that did not, you know, display all of the unique problems that students later presented. And so the school system, in terms of the institution of education, I guess in its attempt to respond to the, you know, very um, specific needs of the students, began to become more regimented in the teaching art form. And it is part art. And I do believe teachers, there are teachers who are gifted to do that, just like there are musicians who are gifted. You know, just having a degree does not mean that you can really pass on the education. And so, but in the current age with kids having so many different issues, you know, especially when they began, because when I was a child, the quote unquote special kids were actually educated in separate curriculum. And then they began mainstreaming and integrating them into the regular classroom, which is, I believe, a linkage to the IEPs and this and that, because you had to do specific things for specific kids. But the whole structure of that profession shifted and it became more regimented and this and that as they were trying to, you know, uh, and I'll say trying and in air quotes, trying to respond to the needs of the students, but they never really wanted to enhance the um, school system with the staff and the specialities to deal with all these things. They just, lump everybody together and tell you, you now you got to be the social worker to this and the that and the cat in the hat. And that was just unfortunate. Linda, um, Linda, thank you. Because um, yes, you are absolutely right. Like one thing about social emotional learning is that yes, we are here to help and support the students. Um, I am for, like Sabrina said, you know, when she had to go through with, when she was in high school and she had a, a peer that committed suicide, I had to deal with as a teacher, um, a student who he wasn't my student, but he was the ex-boyfriend of my former student. He died as, as a result of a carjacking. So he died doing an illegal activity. So how do you compound the fact that somebody died doing an illegal activity and then we later found out that the activity that he was doing was to support his family. He would actually steal the cars, get the money, and give the money to his mother. So you, uh, and on on top of that, you have students who I remember when the pandemic first happened. I think I said this before was uh, to Sabrina that one of the biggest concerns they had when they shut the school down in New York was that the only way the kids got fed is when they went to school, and with inflation and prices going up, I'm pretty sure that's more common than ever. I never, I going to school, I never heard, I never heard of a kid talking about, well, I can't wait to, you know, I, I, I can't wait to get to school next day because I got to eat, but because um, that was unheard of, but to hear that's actually a common thing for, for some kids, um, kids who have to deal with trauma, kids have to deal with abuse. Um, and they're very open about it. It's, it's a lot. And you're trying to teach at the same time. Also, Miss Noel, um, yes, the, the students with the IEPs, they do get mainstream into um, what we call, gen they call ICT classes, they're integrated classes. So the kids who have I IEPs, they get mixed in with the gen ed class. Then there are some classes where it's just gen ed, they don't have IEPs. 
But there are some schools that still have those, what they call them self-content classes, where they do have special needs. It depends on the IEP. There are some kids that they have to stay in there their entire um, K-12 education. And there's some students who are able to um, migrate from the special education classes to the ICT classes. And then there are kids who are actually in ICT classes that actually do get off the IEP. I actually have had a few students who were on IEPs and they were able to get off of them because they were able to do the work without needing the assistance. And I have some students who just, they didn't need the IEPs, they were just lazy. But um, social emotional learning is, I for me, I definitely support it. I think it's great. I think it's very intricate to um, getting students to be more connected because the school, I mean, think of it like this. Kids spend most of their time during the day in school. So they're friends. And as one um, parent coordinator we used to have in your state, they call parent coordinators used to tell us like when you're in school, the teacher is basically your parent. The principal is your grandparent. Like we're responsible for you. I get very leery when kids are not where they're supposed to be at any time because there have been times when kids actually, parents drop their kids off at the front door and then the parent comes up for some, or calls the school for some reason or gets a call from the school say, yeah, your kid's not here. It's like, listen, I dropped them off. This is as soon as they went in the front door, they went right out the back door because we're responsible for them. So teaching has a lot to do, not just I'm, I grew up in a generation where the kids came to school, they learned, da, 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 but you have to do so much. Yes, you have. I've had to pay for stuff out of pocket. Right now, I'm actually paying for stuff out of pocket. There's stuff I'm having shipped right now. Thankfully, I did a um, campaign on Teachers Pay Teachers, and I went well over my goal because some people supported me in what I was trying to do. So I have stuff coming in right now, and I'm still trying to get stuff together to help my students to get to the next level. So yes, that's that, but... Um, that like Noel says, this all plays a part. It's all is connected. And it's really just amazing how this all. Well said. Um, I want to go to be easy because I, I know you chimed in a little bit, but I didn't um, actually go to you to hear your takes. Oh, yeah, it was a lot of different stuff I want to chime in, but I didn't want to like kind of overspeak. Uh, anyone. It was a lot of good points uh, being made. Um, so I, I'll i just bring it back to, because uh, it was so many education points I want to chime in that I don't remember my exact point, but um, I just want to touch back on the whole can, uh, you know, the whole Confederate thing and, uh, you know, people trying to detach it from white supremacy, right? And for people that haven't been taught, because I know you said people in, I think, Massachusetts, where it's not a lot of Black people, they may not have been taught this, even though they can look it up. But for anyone that tries to detach it from white supremacy, just look up the cornerstone speech by the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens. He defended slavery and he said it was a fundamental, he said slavery is a fundamental result of the supposed inferiority of the black race. He describes white supremacy and he says those two words, white supremacy and black subordination is the cornerstone of the Confederacy. So when people were trying to fly this flag and make it seem like it's about heritage 
and and history, heritage for what? History of what? And then the Confederates were very traitorous and treasonous people. So you would think if you look up what the penalty for treason is, many people know that it's the death penalty. But you don't hear it taught and say, hey, what happened to those Confederates? Did they get the death penalty? No, they didn't. The president of the Confederate got two years in prison. There's people that are doing more time for weed and someone that led a revolt against the the greatest nation, right? They get two years in prison, released, spent time in Canada, Cuba, England, and then was able to operate an insurance company that ended up being thriving. Also, the vice president, Alexander Stevens, he was locked up and then he was uh, pardoned by Andrew Johnson or released for indemnity, you know, indemnity, which is Trump is talking about what he wants to give the cops. He was released and he was able to get elected to Congress. These are traitorous, treasonous people. So all the people that are saying that, oh, this is heritage and and, and it's history, tell all of the history. So I'll I'll just land with that. Well said, well said. And yeah, speaking of Johnson, yeah, that that MFR was a flaming racist. Um, So yeah, I'm not surprised that he pardoned uh, some of those individuals uh, who were, you know, uh, involved with the Confederacy. But no, I agree with everything you just said, Easy. Well said. Uh, Let's bring in Jay David. Jay David, you just have to hit the unmute button. Bottom. There we go. Woo! Oh my goodness! Almost fell asleep. Hey, everybody's reading my mind tonight. It's, you know, it's going going all night long. You guys hit on all my talking points. I wonder if you guys are reading into my innermost thoughts because we start off with Alex Jones on Jimmy Dore today. I don't I do not know what happened to Jimmy. I understand he's a comedian and free speech. I believe in it. I don't think Jones should be deplatformed, but come on, the shit that he was that was coming out saying he still hasn't learned from Sandy Hook. I mean, you draw you cross the line when you talk about dead kids. You do. And Jimmy Dore knows that, and he didn't push back in the ways that he did with Cornell West. I get it that Alex Jones isn't running for president, or is he? Because I've I've always wondered if Alex Jones was actually going to run for president. And as a sidebar, and then I'll let everybody chime in, uh, I worked at an Alex Jones affiliate in New Hampshire, uh, 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 I was, uh, we're on Colin, so I can say the station. It was 95.3 FM WSMN in Nashua. It was, it's conservative talk radio. I don't know if they still have it, but I used to work the breaks. And uh, yeah, there's, like Sabrina said, once you head north of the border, there it, it, there's a small Latino population because I taught in, in Nashua, but it, 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 it pales in comparison to say Brockton or Lawrence or yes. Worcester. But uh, yeah, I worked and the dude, I got to say for all the bizarro rants, I mean, he, 
captivated an audience where there wasn't one before. He tapped into an anger that I'm sure a lot of Americans, maybe a lot of white Americans probably felt, or just people who kind of are want to give the middle finger to society. He, he amplified a lot of those voices kind of away from uh, – conservative traditional conservative talk radio that is the money maker in commercial am fm media uh the you know fox news uh, the sean hannity radio shows those types uh you know it was a deviation from that norm and i was mesmerized even though i found what he said about sandy hook to be absolute bullshit because i actually dated somebody whose stepdad responded to Sandy Hook that day. Mm, it's really sad. Yeah, it's just, um, I mean, yeah. I think, again, I, I told you guys before, I think if you're going to, to, unless, again, like you agree with them on like 98% of the issues, but like if you, don't agree with them, then you have to press them in the areas where you disagree. Otherwise, it's just, I don't understand the point of it, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's my thing. Well, it just uh, going on education, because uh, I've um, recently been going through an onboarding process uh, at uh, at a school. I don't want to say which one, but I taught in the public schools uh, now. I've, I've taught uh, all grades uh, for about off and on five years. And uh, I, I started as a substitute in New Hampshire. And after I did that for a year, I moved on to a couple of other districts. And so the district that uh, my, is my hometown, Lowell, when I was uh, jettisoned, I'm uh, I'm 25% Palestinian. I'm also 25% uh, uh, Puerto Rican, uh, Mexican, and, and you know, but I'm also uh, English, Irish, and German. Uh, so it that and Scottish. So it all evens out in a way. But um, you know, I definitely have you know, the white. Uh, passing features or the white presenting features very and i grew up in a household who my parents though god love them they're liberal especially my mom she kind of subscribes to the nikki haley way of life i mean she's a liberal she you know she puts on a show about white privilege and you know it's great until you start bringing up our latino heritage heritage from uh uh, Puerto Rico and, and Cuba and and she and Castellanos and she gets all defensive like what are you talking about and uh, and then I I have to remind you a uh, uh, reminder she's like oh Dave I don't want to talk about it and it almost feels like she, and she knows it and the family my I had to do so much genealogical research uh, tracing uh, my slave and ancestral uh, lineage for uh on a couple of lines in, in her family in our family tree it broke my heart uh and it make him i don't know why my some people can't handle it but in my mom's case 
it was it was hard and the middle eastern side she couldn't handle that either it was it it was upsetting she was she would periodically talk about her struggles working because she was an educator as well and then she was a school psychologist in an all-white district where people would say you know she would tell me people would say uh, you know, you know, I'm not gonna say my mom's name, but here's you, you got to test on somebody who is an Indian. Uh, we think uh, we want to put her on an IP. And my mom said to me, and this was actually after George Floyd, which invoked a lot of emotion. Even, you know, even my mom, who identif- self identifies as white, she she said, all I wanted to do all these years was say to these people, you don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know my struggle. That's all I wanted to say. And instead, I just smiled and said, oh, it's a tan. Mm-hmm. Jay David, can I ask you this? Do you think, um, whether this is your mom or not, um, do you think that people that don't want to address that? Because um, I've talked to a lot of teachers uh, that are like that, too. They're in the spaces if you look at the demographics, I believe like over 80% of teachers are women, right? And the majority of them being white women. So I know a lot of people, they try to assimilate um, mm. and, and they think that if they don't go along with the status quo, that they may be ostracized. Is is that kind of the gist? Yeah. Getting from your mom, one hundred percent. It goes back to uh, you know she had she had a lot she she has a lot of interesting lines. Uh, my father is Middle Eastern, but uh, but it, it, he you know more or less we're white. I'm not gonna you know sugarcoat that. But on my mom's side, it's more complicated. Um, she she came from quote unquote blue blood uh, Britons who fled uh, from the. The, the Midlands of England to uh, uh, northern New York area and became textile barons. I'm not going to say their name, but you can look them up there on YouTube. But there is a line uh, that goes back to East India. And you mentioned, I don't know who mentioned the bleaching of the skin, but that's what my uh, gra- grandparents used to do. And, but, and they would change their name. Because well they were they were it was British Empire anyway so so it was it, it, so it was East Indian and they they went to uh, England and then uh, to America where they owned and operated a textile factory and uh, they were beloved in the community uh, because they subscri- uh, ascribed to a lifestyle a style that uh, you see with Nikki Haley you see with Vivek. You see, I see this a lot now, and I, I mentioned this, I think, actually, on Do Dissidents with Tusker, and uh, I know uh, uh, Russ is filling in, was filling in for Keaton. But anyway, long story short, I said to the, uh, I, I said to them, yeah, my mom, she's also a Latino too, and she, you know, she, I don't know if she, if she wants to uh, identify as white or however she chooses to identify, but it puts me in an awkward position and then it creates a little bit of tension between some relatives because they, they are who they are and I, I i think you know you know 
genealogy is so complex and stories are so multifaceted and you know it's just it's so sad that no that there's a lot of people people who i know and love who can't you know be their true selves they're they're my family they're they can't wait until they get home they can be their true selves but when they're out in public they're very they put on the show and that is difficult Mm. you know my mom would try to straighten my hair out because it was too curly but that you know that explains to us and demonstrates the import of race and even though it was a construct that was created to segregate labor and divide labor i say all the time the entire society our social structure was built out of that because it happened so early. And so sometimes people identity uh, along that black white parallel is very important because a lot of inclusion and exclusion and benefits and all of these things were distributed based on that. And you know, it is a a very um, strong inducement to want to belong. Everybody to some extent wants to belong. And you know, when I consider in the tradition of the descendants of slaves, you know, you had a lot of people mm-hmm. who were racially mixed and they could pass for white and they did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to a certain extent, I'm sure they felt a type of personal, you know, self-betrayal, especially when people moved away from their families so that they could live white without any type of... um familial contact to break the spell. And, you know, I'm sure they were, you know, clenching their fists when they were having children, praying that they would come out white enough to just be white. Yeah. Isn't that a very, that makes a real statement about America and the culture and what we have created in that whole construct about race. My mom, you know, it's just sorry to sorry to steal your thunder, uh, Noel, but I, I guess I have to say my mom sometimes joke around and I, I, I don't know if she meant this half jokingly and forgive me, mom. I know she doesn't listen to this because she's too busy watching MSNBC uh, and <laughs> CNN, but uh, yep, boomers. Uh, but no, she said to me, oh, I wish you would come out blonde haired, blue eyed Aryan. <laughs> And she was always jealous of her sister because she came out the uh, the light uh, the lightest skin out of uh, she and her brother, and I I think that's why her parents uh, who were both of color uh, showered uh, my aunt with love a little more and and you know didn't send her to boarding school. I can tell you how rich my those my mom's side of the family was. In fact, my father was actually on the poverty side when he met my uh, mom who was a little wealthier. So it was kind of a reverse roles for the times back in back at Boston University. Uh, but um but as, as somebody who was of Middle Eastern origin on my dad's side uh, I would say, you know, having lost my 
job and in the process of onboarding for a new teaching job at an all girls boarding school. Uh, I don't want to say which one uh, you lose your job because you have some teacher who holds you in hostility. I was a paraprofessional uh, in, in the district I worked in Lowell uh, where I live and the teacher who I was assigned to was white like like nothing wrong with that but they and nothing wrong with the lgbtq rainbow flags obviously but it was the typical st- what you think of the white woman lgbtq gay guys are my jam you know walking like you're you're going into a hipster bar that 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 type of vibe and i was praying to myself oh i, I was praying oh i hope she's not a racist and she was because she didn't want the brown kiss. She would whisper and very loudly, I, I do not want to have these Engl- non-English-speaking brown kids in my class. And I would go to an admin, and, and the my former admin it was a, a New Hampshire state trooper and former singer-songwriter who had a song called Friend Zone and sang in a fedora. The other one, some Portuguese guy who's a military motherfucker. Of course, this is Lowell, Massachusetts. The school I taught at had a had a fifty five percent Cambodian and Vietnamese population because Lowell was a resettlement uh, city for uh, a lot of the Vietnamese displaced after we bombed the shit out of them in, in Vietnam. And so we we talk about so they're the obvious uh, tropes in the culture uh, you, you you would think we we tend to think about with in the way that. Uh, the the uh central asian south asian uh southeast asian raised their kids so the 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 teachers uh, the white teachers they all had carried this added they carried themselves with this attitude like they were the best but they didn't know how to do anything they were they were snotty they were waiting for their next uh you know job in the burbs where they grew up and, you know, I and then one day I put out something for Palestine and uh, I was in admin admin administration with my with my uh, bosses now former bosses saying, well, well, why did you post this? This is conduct unbecoming. And then uh, I was put on suspension. And then my union rep, because I was past the 60 day law in Massachusetts, I wasn't past it. Um, I had just started a new job. So the district could fire me at will, which they did. And they said, well, I think it was your homeroom teacher who reported your post on social media. She had as she had expressed issues with you before you guys weren't getting along. And I couldn't believe it. And I wanted to sue and I would have been in the right. But I had a friend who was an attorney said it's going to cost you so much time and effort you're just better moving on but i don't talk about it a lot because you know with my parents i don't even that's why i come to spaces like here and colin and, and sabrina you 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 make this place re- welcome for people like me and you guys have made me feel really welcome tonight listening and i, I appreciate it a lot and i appreciate all the good vibes and the advice and people just listening it, it makes me feel it, it, appreciate it oh thank you so much um i want to bring in case i have about 15 minutes left oh my god oh my god i just (laughs) showed you up 25 percent of your time (laughs) 
That's okay. Um, I want to bring in Case and then Bindu. What's up, Case? Hey, what's going on, everybody? Much love. Happy holidays as we come closer to the New Year's. And um, just want to say, I'm sorry, I've been MIA. My computer, every time I touch my laptop or move it, it freezes. So there's not going to be any clips until I get a new um, computer. So uh, hopefully that should be coming soon, but I'm, I'm MIA. Um, as far as, you know, uh, I've been definitely enjoyed. And again, I got to give every so often, I got to give Savvy her flowers because she's the only person basically I, they might as well call this Savvy's Calling like app because I don't know who else is on this app besides us and bringing in the numbers that she's there's 107 people live right now. So definitely got to give Sabrina Flowers for continuing to bring this community together. If it wasn't for you, uh, I wouldn't be able to talk to Noel, listen to Linda, Bindu, my man Roger, BZ, and everyone else here. We wouldn't have this community continuing to go on. And even Eric, I remember him from uh, Brianna Joy Grace calling um, that he was on earlier. And I was like, man, I haven't heard his voice in a while. And it's because of you that we're able to come together. So I, I appreciate you for that. Um, to add my two cents to the, the the school conversation, I didn't even know that neurotypical kids get IEPs because uh, I have I'm a father of two autistic children, one uh, girl, one boy. And I'm, I'm familiar with IEPs because I deal with it with them who in their special needs um, classes or school. And I, I'm, I'm happy that um, and my wife and I, we had to actually fight, though. Um, to get them into a very good special needs school where they have about six kids per class. So uh, I'm very, I would say I'm privileged, but I, w I can't say I'm privileged because we, when my daughter was first diagnosed with it, and then we were able to look out for it for my son um, and grand grandfather him. And with, the, with our daughter, we really had to take our city um, in New Jersey, we had to take them to mediation. And we wanted them to go to a specific special needs school, which at the time we thought it was like a top tier school. And we were going to um, we were going to fight to have them there. And the city said um, that I live in. They said, OK, we can't do that school, but we have this other school that we can take them to. And the bottom um, the bottom option was the city school, which is called George Washington School. And it was, a, it was a regular school, and then it had a special needs class or so special ed class. And when we when I went there with my wife, it had like 20 kids in the class. It had only one teacher, and then the other, I think maybe two other aides, and they were not certified. I said, heck no. So um, luckily, though, when we went to mediation and we fought, um, they were able to give us another option, and that was, it turned out to be the best option that is probably even better than the option we wanted them to go to. The teachers are awesome. The the culture there, the, the from the principal down. My wife was the president of the PTO for that original school, and then they graduated recently, and now they're in another school on the same campus, and they're just flourishing, thankfully, right now. So, um, yeah. But the the thing is, we had to fight for that. So, uh, I know that there's other districts that deal. Um, deal with special needs kids, and I hear a lot of nightmare stories from other neighboring uh, districts, but I also hear of better districts in other areas. So 
I'm just happy with uh, definitely with what we have right now. You know, I, I would love to have neurotypical kids that I always had big dreams and aspirations. Like I played the drums, I played the piano, and I always wanted to teach my kids uh, and get them into music, but they're barely verbal right now. So um, I'm just happy with them being able to say certain words. So, um, uh, yeah, that's my story with that. Uh, I can't imagine what teachers go through right now. I definitely believe one of the reasons why I supported Bernie was he had that 65000 minimum wage for teachers. And I think that teachers should get a six-figure uh, wage. And I think that we should treat teachers like how we treat lawyers, how we treat doctors, how we treat all those um, occupations at high esteem. I think we definitely should teach, uh, treat teachers the same way, and we don't. We definitely do not. We send money overseas. We send money to other countries that have better social welfare, like Israel, than we do here at home. So, um, yeah, that's my two cents, and uh, much love to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Case. Um, thank you so much, Case. Let's bring in Bindu and then Jonathan, and then I have to head out. Ben, do you just have to unmute? Okay, we'll go to Jonathan. Jonathan, you just have to unmute. Thank you, Savvy. I just have one question to ask you. Well, I want to get your opinion about this. So earlier we were talking about Roland Martin. Um, actually, I was writing this down. Um, I'm a little bit optimistic about the black community when it comes to what's going on with the Democratic Party, because I don't know if you covered this, Sabby. If you did, I apologize. I, I'm actually because I was in the process of moving. I'm now catching up to um, your videos. One thing Roland Martin was covering was the mayoral election in Houston between Sheila Jackson Lee and John Whitmer. Well, in case y'all don't know, Sheila Jackson Lee lost to John Whitner, Whitmer 65 to 35 percent. People did not go out and vote for, actually, she, she, the election, the, the day of the election, um, they actually have a runoff. So they had a runoff in December, and that's when Sheila Jackson Lee lost. Sheila Jackson Lee then turns around and runs for Congress, is now running for Congresswoman, the position that she used to have, when that position was supposed to go to Amanda Edwards, who dropped out of the mayoral, mayoral campaign, mayoral election, excuse me in Houston and to support Jackson Lee. But I was watching Phil Scott, as someone mentioned um, on the show, I'm a little bit optimistic is because if they're saying, if black people in Houston are saying they don't want Sheila Jackson Lee, which Roland Martin has not covered or talked about, um, what does this say about the Democratic Party? I think that, the, in my opinion, that, the that black people are looking at the Democratic Party and saying, hell no, we don't want Joe Biden. We're not voting for whoever you put in um, office or tried to run. He also had the election in, I think it was Kentucky. Yeah, I believe it was Kentucky. Louisiana. Sorry? There was a Louisiana one. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Thank you so much, BZ. Louisiana. I can remember you. Louisiana. So what are your thoughts on it? Do you think that Black... And also on my social media, especially Facebook, Right around this time, I would see people trying to, you know, vie for Joe Biden, riding for Biden or what, or whoever the Democratic uh, nominee is. I'm not seeing that much. And, I, and now I'm starting to see people saying, fuck Biden. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, anyone? I think a lot of people are going to end up staying home. I think that's what you see happening in like Louisiana. That's what you see happening with Sheila Jackson Lee. 
I think a lot of people are just gonna like check out and stay home. I actually saw a video recently um, from the African uh, Diaspora Network on YouTube where they were actually talking to Chicago voters and Chicago voters were just, they're not, they're have walking away um, from the Democratic Party because of the migrant situation in Chicago. And it's not that they're saying that people shouldn't be able to come here. They're mad because what is being offered to uh, migrants coming to Chicago is more than what's offered to Black people who grew up there, who are citizens. So it's it's a big it's a big to do. And they were saying in in that video that they're going to be voting for Trump. Yeah, they they threatened to turn the city red, and and they and uh, they've been really stomping the line. They said, look, we are not uh, anti-migrant. They said, we actually don't want, because uh, they tried to do a construction site and then they had to scrap it because it was going to be put on, uh, the, the whole site was toxic, right? But then the residents are saying, yeah, but the site has been toxic the whole time. And now you only care about the toxic nature due to the migrants and they spent over a hundred million on there and they're doing the same thing in new york they're just busting the migrants here and there and all of the people you know the bidenomics you've seen what happened when they took the migrants to Mar martha's vineyard obama and those people stomping ground they got they gave them blankets and they got them out of there quicker than you can spell martha's vineyard and the thing is they're dropping them in uh, black neighborhoods and uh, especially in Chicago, they closed mm -hmm. a bunch of schools and then they said, you know what, we're going to open those schools to house migrants. And they're saying, no, we want those schools open to teach our kids. They had uh, after school programs that they want to shut down to house migrants. And if you look at Brighton Park areas, that area is actually an immigrant enclave and the immigrants are complaining about the migrant crisis because they're saying hey we uh been waiting to get documented or we've been here for years and now the, the migrants are jumping uh us they also in chicago they've given uh, uh multiple migrants over nine thousand dollars per month for rental assistance so people are just looking like look man we've been your most loyal voting base and we're supposed to just help everyone else while not getting anything. It's essentially like if you're having family dinner, everyone on this panel helps cook the dinner. And then when we're it's time to bring the turkey, we take it outside and say, hey, the neighbor is starving. It's like, look, we, we care about the neighbors, too. But everyone at the table is waiting to eat. And you're going to take what we fought, earned blood, sweat, and tears for and just give it to someone else. That doesn't mean that you hate that person. It's, what do they say about self-preservation? It's the number one rule. I, I can't preserve everyone else if I'm not preserving the conditions and the infrastructure of my community. And also, Sheila Jackson Lee, she had some of the heavy hitters, Obama, uh, Hillary Clinton, all of the Democrat establishment came out to endorse her and she still lost. She got destroyed in that. That's right. That's right. All right, guys, I do have to head out. Thank you guys so much for If you get my vote, I need tangibles. One thing that I'm hearing, especially from the Hotep community, is that, listen, 
they're starting to say now we realize, well, not realize, we know that if we don't get our tangibles, specifically reparations, you're not getting our vote. If the Latinx community can get immigration reform passed somehow. Oh, and one more thing, Sabi, I want to bring up. It's where because in Michigan, we know that Biden is losing um, with the Arab and Muslim communities. But I have not heard not one person on CNN or MSNBC say, well, whoa, why aren't they voting? Well, shame on them. Shame on them for not supporting Biden. Not one person has come out to shame that community. But black people, oh, my God. If we say one little thing, oh, shame. You you people, you your people died for the right to vote. I'm like, okay, all right. Well, what about the Arab community? And his numbers are going down in Michigan, and he needs Michigan to win. Yeah, um, I, I talked about that recently with um, Cornell West actually said that he is going to be, uh, he's actually going to be targeting those voters in uh, Michigan. So just FYI. I do, I do have to head out though. Um, so I'm going to get going. Thank you guys so much for hanging in and joining me tonight good morning good night night. much love right take care of you guys bye peace